This is Jocko Podcast number 153. With Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Congressional resolution honoring the veterans of helicopter attack light squadron three and their families Whereas helicopter attack light squadron three here and after in this resolution referred to as HAL three began its history as detachments of Navy helicopter combat support squadron one HC one which began helicopter gunship operations in support of Navy Brownwater special operations and army units in the Mekong Delta of South Vietnam on September 19th 1966 whereas the detachments of HC one adopted the name Sea Wolves. Whereas HAL 3 was officially established on April 1st, 1967, in Vung Tau, South Vietnam, and was the only active duty Navy helicopter gunship squadron in the history of naval aviation. Whereas during the squadron's existence, nearly 3,000 veterans of HAL 3 displayed extraordinary courage in support of United States military and political objectives in Vietnam. Whereas 44 veterans of HAL 3 gave their lives in support of military operations in the Mekong Delta, Vietnam. Whereas the extraordinary performance of the veterans of HAL 3 earned numerous unit citations, including six presidential unit citations, seven Navy unit commendations, one meritorious unit commendation, a Republic of Vietnam meritorious unit commendation, and the Vietnam Service Medal. Whereas the valor of the veterans of HAL 3 earned five Navy Crosses, 31 Silver Stars, two Legion of Merit Medals, five Navy and Marine Corps Medals, 219 Distinguished Flying Crosses, 156 Purple Hearts, 101 Bronze Stars, 142 Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Crosses, over 16,000 Air Medals, 439 Navy Commendation Medals, and 228 Navy Achievement Medals, making it possibly the most decorated Navy squadron during the Vietnam War. Whereas the maintenance and administrative personnel of HAL 3 contributed greatly to the success of the nine HAL 3 detachments operating throughout the Mekong Delta, providing the detachments with superb maintenance, support, and logistics. Whereas HAL 3 flew over 130,000 hours of combat and logistical support. Whereas HAL 3 inflicted several thousand casualties on enemy forces. Whereas HAL 3 performed 1,530 medical evacuations. Whereas HAL 3 delivered over 37,000 passengers and over 1 million pounds of cargo. And whereas HAL 3 was disestablished in March 1972 at Bing Thuy, South Vietnam as part of the Vietnamization program, leaving behind it a combat and humanitarian record recognizing, recognized as bringing great credit upon the United States Navy and its role in the Vietnam War. Now, th- therefore, be it resolved that the House of Representative one honors the service, courage, and sacrifice of the veterans of HAL 3, Two, honors the families of HAL 3 veterans for their support. 
3 expresses its condolences to the families and comrades of those killed in action. And 4 recognizes HAL 3 as a unique squadron in the history of naval aviation. And that resolution of recognition was made in 2010, actually 38 years after the Sea Wolves were disestablished in Vietnam. And that is a long time to wait for recognition. And this is because, well, for one thing, they weren't looking for recognition, but also to much of the world, the Sea sea Wolves were relatively unknown. For me, having grown up in the SEAL teams, I actually knew about the Sea Wolves. I knew about their reputation from the Vietnam-era SEALs that held them in the absolute highest regard possible. And they were considered extremely courageous, courageous, uh, sometimes beyond courageous. They were incredible pilots and highly aggressive gunners and the teams that maintained and kept the aircraft flying in really horrible conditions they were known for getting the job done and there's one thing that always stuck in my mind when I heard stories about the sea wolves in Vietnam and that was this simply if you called them they would come and it didn't matter if it was day or night sunny skies or typhoon rains a calm extraction or a hot landing zone filled with enemy fire to the sea wolves none of that mattered what mattered is that the troops on the ground needed help and if you called the sea wolves they would come and it is an honor today to have one of these men here with us to tell us about this relatively unknown but at the same time legendary squadron of naval aviation helicopter attack squadron light HAL 3 the sea wolves and we have Dennis Rowley naval officer naval aviator and of course sea wolf sir absolutely honored to have you on the show thank you for coming Jaco I thank you and and you echo uh, for the opportunity to be here it's uh, <clears throat> It's something that I didn't want to do. Uh, you know, you hear the old saw about uh, you don't talk about uh, the war. And I think that's true of most all of the guys that I knew and flew and fought with. We just don't talk about it except over a beer in a bar somewhere with uh, guys we've trusted our lives to. However, <clears throat> my uh, wife, Stinky, and my son and daughter, uh, when they heard about this opportunity, told me, you got to do this. You got to help keep the reputation of the Sea Wolves alive. And I don't think that reputation needs a lot of buildup on my part. Uh, but I'm here to honor the 44 of our brothers who weren't able to, to come on back with us. And I'm here to help share a little bit of history about the, uh, the squadron. And I'm here to thank every one of you swinging dick gunners who helped me get my little pink body back without any additional holes in it. 
Those guys are phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, they're really something. But we'll get into that. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, I'm still uh, scratching my head as to why I'm here. Because you guys have giants on this show. You just had a fella who was uh, a highly decorated Marine uh, uh, infantry officer. He uh, went on to get a law degree. He went on to uh, work in the VA. He became the Secretary of the Navy. He uh, became a congressman from the great state of Virginia. And, uh, oh, by the way, was a little-known candidate for president of the U.S. And party politics aside, this country would have been better off if Jim Webb had been our president. Totally agree. Yeah. And I can say that uh, not from, uh, you know, just a casual uh, uh, reading of his bio. I know Jim because he was a classmate of mine at the Naval Academy. I know Jim because he was a company mate of mine at the Naval Academy. And I know Jim to be the, uh, the, the kind of a man that uh, I would hope my son would become. Mm -hmm. Just a great guy. I can also say that I know Jim because for a brief time, plebe summer, we roomed together. So you're looking at one of the only guys that you'll ever meet who is proud to share the fact that he slept with the Secretary of the Navy. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're here to spread the word and, and have a little fun. The, uh, the one thing that was really important about uh, recent past is uh, a Seawolf reunion. We have reunions every, every couple of years and now many uh, reunions more frequently. But this one was uh, pretty special. It was about two months ago. We were gathered on the uh, flight deck of the Midway uh, for the premiere of a, a documentary called Scramble the Seawolves. They had a big inflatable screen on the flight deck, and we were all up there laughing and scratching. Uh, one thing that I noticed about uh, the entire experience is, man, all those guys look old now. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. But uh, the... Uh, the movie, the documentary was very well shot. It's uh, actually being released on uh, KPBS and PBS, and I assume that shortly after that it'll be available on YouTube. But uh, it, it gave us a sense of pride, and I think I can speak for everyone that it gave us a, a little greater sense of belonging uh, based upon the fact that uh, our, our story could now be told. Yeah, no, that's a. I've watched it. And anybody can watch it. You can if you Google "Scramble the Sea Wolves" KPBS, uh, it'll pop up, and you can watch it. it just you know, it's, there's no email to sign up for. It's free. Um, that's how you can you can watch it. Um, let's let's talk about the Sea Wolves. Let's talk a little bit about your past because I think uh, you're. I mean, starting with your your dad being a pilot, and yeah, let's start with that and and what that was like growing up. Well, my dad would really be pissed off at you for calling him a pilot because dad was an aviation ordnance chief. <laughs> and he knew that the guys in the back were doing the job and the guys up front were just uh, steering the bus. <laughs> no, my dad, William John Raleigh, was uh, a hell of a guy. He was an interesting man. And that's the nicest thing you can say about somebody, I think. Dad was the kind of a guy who could uh, walk into a room and... Uh, uh, full of strangers and an hour later walk out and everybody thought he was their new best friend. Good guy. Great guy. But he comes from a, a long line of warriors. My uh, grandfather, who married my grandmother from Hilo, uh, yeah, he, uh, he fought in uh, World War I. 
I have a wonderful picture at home of my mom and her three brothers uh, taken during uh, World War II. And uh, Uncle Walt is there in his Marine Corps uniform. Uncle Bob is there in his Navy blues. And my, uh, my Uncle Jim is there uh, in his Army Air Force yeah. uniform. And then uh, when World War II uh, broke out, my, my dad and his brother, my Uncle Herb, both joined the Navy. Uh, dad went on into aviation ordnance and uh, came out the other end of the, the pipe after peace as one of the last of the Tojo chiefs, a guy who made chief in a little over three years. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting fellow. And uh, leadership lesson uh, number one for me was the way he helped me grow as I was uh, coming up. You would think that a chief petty officer in the Navy can be very gruff and directive. And they, they can, and they are, when it's required. But Dad never told me, go do this. He'd say, have you ever considered, have you ever thought about, have you ever? And he brought it into practice one day when uh, I was uh, just uh, getting ready for college and. Uh, uh, trying to decide where I was going to go. He had just come back from a med cruise, and he had one of his JOs, a pilot, a Naval Academy grad, uh, invite me over to his house for dinner. And, you know, I thought that was a little strange, but I was pretty excited about it. Uh, the uh, guy came and picked me up in a brand-new yellow Corvette mm -hmm. and took me over to his home and introduced me to his drop-dead gorgeous Swedish wife. Now, Dad didn't have to say, you should go to the Naval Academy for the experience in learning leadership. He brought it down to, to a level that I could understand. Yeah. yeah, you thought you'd get issued a Swedish wife? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, what I wanted, Jocko, was some, somebody 5'8", five, 5'9", five, long, straight, blonde hair, good head, bitch and bod. Would he come? Completely intelligent and uh, uh, imbued with the mating instincts of a wild mink in heat. <laughs> but what the good Lord saw fit to pair me up with was Stinky, and she's a stumpy little brown-haired girl that's just ornery as a sack of wildcats. So, yeah, ain't it funny how it all works out? Yeah. Uh, so so you, you, you go meet this pilot, and you, did, that, did that flip the switch in your head? Uh, well, I, I, I always knew I wanted to be a uh, naval aviator. It's just something that I, that I wanted. I had uh, initially had dreams of going uh, in and flying spads. That uh, A1 was a, just a hell of a, a weapons carrier and a close air support mission that uh, was uh, non-parallel in my way of thinking. Uh, they uh, got a lot of guys out of the shit. Uh, but uh, that didn't work out because the aircraft was being retired as I was going through flight school. Uh, the thought of going to the Naval Academy was always intriguing to me. I didn't know that I'd be able to uh, make that, but I was one of the, uh, you know, I'm sort of large, and I was uh, one of the uh, only Navy uh, dependents who were into athletics uh, at Kubasaki High School on Okinawa, mm. where I went through all four years of high school. And uh, the uh, senior uh, Naval officer on the uh, island had roomed with uh, Wayne Hard and the football coach at Navy. They did a uh, quick scout and uh, uh, told me to take a competitive exam and I'd uh, uh, be considered for the uh, academy. Mm. I uh, had, had a year to, to waste while I was waiting to get into the academy, so I went to Berkeley. This is in the 1963-64 school year, mm -hmm. which was very colorful. Mario Salvo was up there doing his, uh, his uh, dirty word movement on the steps of the administration, but it was, <laughs> it was ugly. 
my parents lived across the hill in Walnut Creek, California, and every time uh, the, the, the news was over, I'd get a frantic call from my mother. Are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, Mom, I'm okay. It's, yeah. But at any rate, uh, uh, following that uh, year at Berkeley, uh, I received a presidential uh, appointment, and even though he, was, he had uh, been assassinated, uh, John Kennedy's signatures wow. was on that. Yeah. And I went back to the, uh, uh, to the to Navy, uh, fell in love with the uh, crew, and I can honestly say that if it hadn't been for rowing at Navy, I probably wouldn't have made it through. I probably would have quit, which is something that you would have been pissed off about. <laughs> I would have been. Yeah. <laughs> is, uh, and why is that? Because it gave you something to focus on? It gave you an outlet? Uh, exactly. Uh, crew is hands down... The, uh, the the greatest team sport that you can imagine. It uh, if even one person is not pulling their weight, is not exactly in sync, the rhythm of the boat uh, suffers. Uh, it'll be dragged down, and uh, everyone will know exactly the the reason for that. You can tell by the size of the puddle, the way the boat is uh, set. It's it's phenomenal. So it's it's a great lesson in group leadership. And that everyone has to be a leader in that shell to put their, their, the maximum that they can into it to make the boat move. If you get a chance, read a book called uh, The Boys in the Boat. Okay. It's, uh, I've heard of that it's book. Got, yeah, it's got great insight into what rowing's all about. And you guys should be up on other sports. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so you, you, you row at the Naval Academy. How is your, how is your since you kind of grew up in the Navy, your dad was a chief. You yep. must have been at least somewhat prepared for the, you know, the shock and awe of drill instructors and upperclassmen and all that stuff. It uh, wasn't the uh, the drill instructors or the uh, uh, the upperclassmen. It was the chicken shit. I had a a, a guy in my, our company that just hated me, mm -hmm. and he'd stand me up in the uh, passageway, and he had a plastic baseball bat and beat me in the chest with it. Yeah, it's a non-event, you know, thunk, thunk, thunk. But if I saw that guy again, <laughs> I would rip his head off because it was just so juvenile. I was a couple of years older than my classmates oh, for yeah. a, a number of reasons. I flunked kindergarten. But at any rate, it <laughs> was, uh, yeah, <laughs> you just don't do things like that. There's, 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 no, there's no leadership lessons. There's no benefit to be had from some of the stuff that was going on in there. But when I got out there on the water with my teammates, you know, it all just went away. Yeah, there's something to be learned from having to put up with such crap. And I think there's two ways people go with it. Some Sometimes they go with like, oh, I'm going to be able to do that one day and, and give people a bunch of shit about whatever. And some people go, okay, I'm never going to act like that. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. And then how, and, and um, so you were Jim Webb's roommate, Plebe Summer? Uh, just for uh, a few days, but uh, we were in the same oh, okay. company for uh, all four years. Yeah, and then he's a heck of a guy. Yeah, uh, no, it was awesome. It was a real honor to have him on here, and you know, he he told a similar story, and he wrote about it in his in some of his books, which was you know a guy just smacking him in the ass with uh, some kind of bat. It was our songbook, <laughs> and and they're telling him he needs to say you know just admit that it hurts, and he wouldn't admit it. Yeah. But same thing, you know, he's kind of like, hey, if, he, 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 what did he say? He said, you know, I don't hold anything against those guys that did that to me, but I remember their names. 
<laughs> so yeah. I think they made the list for Jim Webb. Yeah. Um, and then how did you end up picking? So you you already automatically knew you wanted to be a pilot. Yeah, absolutely. And was that hard to get selected for that? Uh, no, it was a service selection. Is done based on class rank, and I graduated in the top ten percent of the bottom third of my class, and that was sufficient to get me into <laughs> into aviation. Since I couldn't fly the SPAD, I I really wanted to go jets. Sorry, guys, I have to admit that. But uh, due to due to my size uh, and my anthropometric measurements, if I had to punch out, I would have uh, left my knees on the glare shield of the uh, the trainers. How at that tall time. are you? Uh, six four. Yeah, big. Yeah. Um, this was you know clearly, and, and Jim Webb talked about this when he was on the podcast. You know, he's he was the guy in charge of hanging up the names of the guys that had been killed. And and yet when I had Charlie Plum on who went graduated I think in 64 or he showed up in 64 No graduated in 64 Vietnam wasn't even on the on the radar That's for right. them and for you guys it, it you know 1967 1968 it had to, you you know you had to have known okay I'm going to fight in Vietnam when you walk into Mother B Bancroft Hall you go into the rotunda which is a, a very large open area and when we started losing uh, our uh, former classmates, the graduates, uh, I'm sure uh, Jim explained, but you put a poster board up there with a picture out of the uh, lucky bag and a, uh, a brief bio and a, not a description, but where they died. And initially it was just uh, onesies, twosies, but pretty soon the, the march went all the way around the rotunda and they had to move it up into Memorial Hall. Uh, and it, it really brought home uh, the fact that uh, this is this is serious. This is a, you know you're making up your minds whether or not you want to uh, dedicate your lives to the defense of this country, and it might come at a considerable cost. Mm -hmm. And for 44 of our brothers, it certainly did. 44 sea wolves didn't make it back. And I'm sort of an emotional guy. But uh, one of the few times that I've really cried openly and unashamedly was at the wall. Seeing, uh, seeing a couple of my gunners up there just uh, really brought it home to me. Amazing people gunners are. <laughs> so, so that's that's what you know you're getting into upon yeah. commissioning and so you you get commissioned and you, you graduate in 68 your class of 68 right and you then you go to Pensacola Florida is that where you go to flight school that's right and that's that what you talk us a little bit through the the flight school path you show up you learn to fly what a t-38 is that uh, what you learn on? No, we, you start out on a T-34. Okay. And it, it, there's, there's been a change in the way they, uh, they uh, instruct naval aviators now. When we were going through, you had to do the flight, to, uh, the fixed-wing flight syllabus first before you could get into helicopters. And then you'd go through the helicopter uh, syllabus. And then after that, those of us that uh, got orders to uh, Vietnam would uh, go up to uh, uh, Fort Rucker, and the Army would uh, instruct us in tactics, in uh, uh, armaments systems. Uh, they, did, they did a good job in prepping us. Uh, 
and then send us overseas and the rest of it would be done in country. So the, the, the training that we received along the way was, uh, was excellent, but uh, a lot of it was just like uh, back at the academy. They told us that, uh, hey guys, the education you receive here at the United States Naval Academy cost the taxpayer approximately $250,000, which was a lot of money back then. And our reply was, yeah, but you stick it up our butts a nickel at a time. <laughs> so, you know, you know. Had you, so now you're in the pipeline for, for helicopters. Had you heard of Seawolves at this time? Were, were you hearing about it? Did you, is it something that you said, oh, I want to go do that? We were just starting to hear about it. And, you know, it uh, wasn't uh, that fully developed in my mind. It, uh, that's uh, uh, where I wanted to go. But it, it quickly became, um, there is a, a, a purpose for every element in the military, from uh, the guys who swabs the decks all the way on up. But I didn't want to be a bus driver. I didn't want to be a guy who bored holes in the sky. So this being a sea wolf immediately appealed to me as an opportunity to be able to, I don't know, to pay back. It, it's, it's a funny thing. And I'll jump ahead a little here. But uh, I have a, a cousin uh, who is very close to me. She's like a sister to me. And I'd never really thought about questions like you just asked, but uh, after, immediately after I got back from Vietnam, she was driving me on out to family home in Walnut Creek, California. And without taking her eyes off the road, she said, how can you do it? And I thought about that for just a minute and said, well, it was pretty easy. I went over there to bring as many of our guys home safely as I could. And in some ways I failed, in some ways I succeeded. But that's it. I was enough of a student uh, to, to understand the domino effect, uh, certainly. But that wasn't in my thinking. Uh, you know, you're thinking sort of <laughs> 10 yards, mm -hmm. 10 yards. But uh, in, in the air, it's a little uh, more expansive. It's, it's the guys that you're flying with, the guys in your fly, fire team, the guys on your debt, the guys who are uh, the maintainers back in uh, Bentui. They're the uh, they're the guys you think about, and that's why you do it. Okay, so did you get to select? You get done with um, you get done with the training. Did you get to select? Hey, I want to go to the, the squadron in Vietnam. Uh, pretty much, yes. It, it, Was there a long list for that? For that there, there were. There, I, oh, I'm sure awful. there were more volunteers than uh, than uh, got accepted. Oh, okay. I don't know the mechanics of that. I asked for it, and I got it. And how did that look like showing up? In, in Vietnam. <laughs> I, I was the uh, only officer assigned to uh, the Sea Wolves who uh, took that uh, reverse freedom flight on into Saigon. And I got there and they shuffled me off to the Annapolis Hotel, which I thought was a, a little unusual. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I had a couple of days to kill because there wasn't any trans transport down to, uh, to Bintui. And I knew uh, a dear friend of mine uh, who was at, uh, in debt, too, at Na Bay, and he'd got over there before I did. So I figured, Na Bay, that's not too far away. I'm going to go visit him. And the next morning, I uh, check out a 45, put it in my gym bag. I'm in civvies. They didn't uh, <laughs> like us uh, roaming around town in onesies uh, in uniform. 
So I uh, jumped on a Navy bus out to Nabe. I was having a great time talking to the guys at the debt there and learning a little about what's going on. And <laughs> comes time to, to leave, and it's uh, probably about 1630. And I say, well, I better get back. And they say, well, you just missed the last bus. But don't worry about it. You can take a pedicab. <laughs> so here I am, uh, brand new in country. I've got the zipper in my uh, on my gym bag open <laughs> with my hand very close to it. And this uh, Vietnamese fellow is pedaling away, taking me back to the, uh, the hotel. It took us about an hour to get back there. And uh, I tipped him generously because I'm not a light fellow. I was a lot lighter then. But, uh, you know, here I am, my first day in country, and I'm going to get greased. <laughs> so, yeah. Hey, tell us, uh, if you wouldn't mind, um, some of the about the formation of the Sea Wolves because it's a, it's a very cool story about the Mekong Delta about the way things the, the way the enemy moved through the Mekong Delta and through the Rungsat Special Zone and there was no roads and the only way to get yeah. around was water. If you want to maybe expand on that just so people can kind of get a feel for for what started this whole thing off. Sure, sure. The uh, uh, the Mekong Delta is fed by uh, waters fr- uh, from the Himalayas. It comes on down and uh, spreads out into a, a broad uh, quasi-oceanic area. Basically, it's mud and crap and brown water, and uh, hence the Brown Water Navy. But at any rate, the, uh, the, there are very few roads that do anything but connect major cities in the Mekong uh, back then. <clears throat> And consequently, uh, just about all the traffic moved by uh, sampan uh, or, or junk. And that's the way people got around. The uh, infiltration that the uh, NVA and uh, the, uh, uh, the VC uh, practiced came uh, largely either on foot, by bicycle, or by boat. In order to uh, counteract that, uh, Task Force uh, 116 uh, was uh, put into place. Game Warden was the, uh, the operational mission, and we were there to interdict that traffic in personnel, ammunition, and uh, food logistics that was moving down into the Delta. The uh, Army uh, took that mission on first, actually flying off a couple of uh, uh, LCDs, uh, that were uh, rigged with a uh, makeshift flight deck. But uh, that didn't work out too well. And uh, not, this is not saying anything against the Army. But uh, in their syllabus, they weren't trained on instruments. In Navy, we were rigorously, first in uh, fixed wing and then in helicopters. So we were used to flying in the shit, and the Navy and, and the Army was not. And, and that's... That's because the Navy has to fly at sea and land on ha- on boat on ships. That's right. Different I mean, missions. That, that's it. Different missions at the time. The uh, the Army uh, uh, outgrew that, but it was uh, it was painful. They had a, had a different mission than we did. So uh, they uh, they had a, a unit that was assigned to our opcon, and they would fly uh, cover for uh, for the uh, small boats. Uh, those were primarily the uh, PBRs and the swift boats. We didn't see many swift boats up at Ben Luck. Uh, we were working with the PBR sailors. Uh, PBR, Patrol Boat River, is a 32-foot fiberglass luxury boat that was stripped clean and uh, was highly maneuverable. 
but it was, uh, <laughs> I say, stripped clean of everything that was non-essential. They were very lightweight, uh, had uh, little armor at all, but they were very heavily armed. And these boats, you talk about guys with uh, brass balls. They'd poke up into uh, these impossibly narrow canals and up uh, little riverlets uh, just looking for trouble. And it frequently came their way. So the Army was uh, attempting to work with them. There were all sorts of uh, minor operational uh, problems to overcome. Uh, who's calling out the missions? Uh, uh, what uh, the support area is? It just wasn't working well. So the Navy decided that uh, we needed a Navy squadron. And they turned to HC-1, the Fleet Angels, to, uh, to put, put a few debts in place to help provide cover for the, uh, the Brownwater Navy. And by Brownwater Navy, I mean the uh, small boat guys, the SEALs, any Navy, Navy uh, uh, vessel that was down in the, uh, in the Mekong. And uh, it wasn't working well with the, uh, the Army. HC-1 picked it up. It started working very well. Uh, because they understood the Navy's mission much better than the Army, and they were uh, e equipped with the uh, capabilities to fly both at night and in bad weather. And uh, I don't know if you've uh, been in monsoon before, but it's shitty flying. <laughs> it is I'll take your word for it. really bad. So uh, as, uh, as you've already mentioned, on April Fool's Day in 67, uh, uh, they decided that a, a in-country squadron was uh, required, and uh, that responsibility was shifted from HC-1 to HAL-3. Uh, we grew to having uh, nine detachments uh, that were scattered throughout the Delta to uh, give us a quick reaction time to virtually uh, any, any area in the Mekong. And uh, each detachment had uh, two aircraft assigned. It had uh, uh, two full crews for each aircraft, and that was about it. But let me, let me give you a little info on uh, the noble UH-1 Bravo. I love that aircraft. It was a piece of crap. <laughs> it really was. But it uh, got us out of, uh, out of a lot of trouble every time we flew it. Just for people that are listening, that's the classic Vietnam Huey aircraft that's that's what you see that's what you see in movies that yeah. that's it yeah there really was sort of a uh <laughs> mikhail's navy uh, <laughs> uh that uh ca cachet that was attached to the sea wolves uh the the army was just getting rid of their bravo models to go to this uh, to the charlies which had uh several hundred uh, greater horsepower uh, more maneuverable uh, blah 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 and they had uh, some old Bravos sitting around, and rather than shipping them back to the boneyard or destroying them in place, they gave them to the Navy. So frequently, we had a lot of rebuilding to do before uh, we uh, turned these guys loose. But God bless the Army. They gave us, uh, they gave us our, uh, our aircraft. Uh, <laughs> support for the uh, Bravo and the Navy chain was not the best. So you've... <sighs> It's easy to say, beg, borrow, or steal. Uh, borrow or steal is what we did uh, quite well. Quite well. Our, our guys were incredible. We, a chief would grab a couple of guys and go out and come back with exactly what we needed. And you don't ask a question about that. You, you just put it into play. 
so uh, the uh, the nine deaths, two uh, helicopters in each. Uh, each uh, Huey was uh, basically configured with two seven-shot rocket pods, uh, 2.75 folding thin aerial rockets. We had uh, a pair of uh, 60s that uh, were mounted uh, with a flex gun to co-pilot control those. But the, uh, the thing that really made us uh, uh, unique and powerful was our door gunners. When I first got there, and just, just for a very short period of time, our door gunners were still firing 60s from the shoulder. And uh, that uh, was just an incredibly powerful tool in keeping the bad guys' heads down during our break and uh, prepping the area for the next aircraft to, uh, to roll in. So we typically have a door gunner on uh, one side and on the uh, other side, if we were lucky, uh, a 50. Uh, eventually this grew. We uh, got uh, some miniguns. Most all of our uh, dead birds eventually uh, had uh, miniguns, and the guys in the back would uh, fly them, and it uh, did wonders for uh, keeping, uh, keeping heads down, as did the uh, 50 cows that, uh, that we had. Uh, when we went from shoulder-held 60s to, uh, there's a lesson there. Our guys would, uh, it wasn't unusual to see them standing out on the skids firing uh, cover for us. That was a great good thing, but it also uh, re resulted in brassing uh, the uh, sink elevator and the, <laughs> or uh, it just wasn't really, really acceptable. If you brass a tail rotor, you'll know about it. It's a rough ride going back in. But uh, uh, they decided that, no, we can't have that. And uh, sort of tied the gunner's hands by uh, putting what they called a pussy pole in the, uh, in the door and uh, mounted the, uh, the 60 to it. Well, the guys uh, got uh, more than a little inventive and decided that uh, if 160 is good, two would be better and mounted two. One, uh, yeah, here, here we go again. <laughs> Hayden, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, mounted uh, two 60s there and found out that they were brassing the, the, uh, <laughs> the tail rotor still. So what they did was they rotated each. 90 degrees in opposing uh, directions, and all of a sudden, uh, brassing was no longer uh, much of a problem. Did essentially the same uh, with our 50s. Uh, they uh, mounted that so that it uh, would uh, uh, fire um, uh, 90 degrees uh, longitudinally, and that was a, a, a very powerful weapon for not only uh, uh, keeping, uh, keeping guys down, but also uh, it gave us a, a, a great degree of flexibility in the, in the break. And perhaps I should explain uh, that by the break, uh, we typically would fly in a, uh, in a wagon wheel type, uh, uh, type approach, uh, two helicopters, uh, roughly uh, flying uh, 180 out from uh, one another. So one is rolling in on the target as the other is coming around behind it. So when you then break off the target, the next helicopter is in there uh, laying down its fire. And uh, that, that uh, 50 would, would really help us out in both uh, identifying problem areas and taking care of the problem. Yeah, yeah that's a great, uh, a great background. And, and, you know, even when you watch um, uh, Scramble the Seawolves, the just – all the footage is just 
un- it's unbelievable footage of the way you guys were flying and what the gunners were doing. Gunners hanging out and shooting underneath the bird back in the yeah. other direction. Yeah. <laughs> hanging out by a gunner's belt. Um, they might have invented the term gunner's belt. Yeah. I, I, I was... There, oh, go ahead. There, <laughs> there's a rite of passage that uh, most of the... Uh, uh, FNGs got and when I was in that FNG seat, I uh, learned it one dark and stormy night uh, We're flying along in the and uh, the the hack the, the aircraft commander Diverted my attention off to the left and when I turned back Right here in the window of the Huey <laughs> was one of my gunners who had mooning me <laughs> So, hey, this is going to be fun. <laughs> that and uh, the other was, uh, if, if you were new to the debt as a pilot, you were going to get a collar full of brass. Oh, and it was oh. really easy for them to do when they had the uh, free guns. Oh, yeah. uh, they got a little more inventive later on. Ah, <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's freaking dangerous. <laughs> it uh, smarts. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of fun, one of the one of the things uh, I pulled off of the website um, seawolf.org is you guys had this thing that you called the Wolfgram, which was sort of sort of like a sit rep for all the all the different elements that were out yeah. there, and I think it paints a pretty good picture of the overall attitude. And I pulled out one of the clips, and I'm just going to read it. So this is your debt debt for from beautiful downtown Ben Luck. The fog cutters of debt four would like to wish everyone a merry monsoon season. Only 10 shopping days left. We'd better start with Lieutenant J.G. Who White before we forget him. Everyone else has. <laughs> he, he, uh, he, though he was leaving in May, but Bupers forgot to assign him a new duty station. Admin forgot to request a flight booking for him. And operations forgot to inform him that, this, that his FTL papers had been signed. But we're sure we'll finally... Fi- that we're, but we're sure things will finally turn around for, what's his name? <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Deacon John- Johnson left on R&R to Hawaii, and Lieutenant J.G. R- Rookie Rich, uh, can't read the name, par- par- Farmer? Farmer? Yeah, Farmer, was called in to straighten out Bin Toy, Bin Tui, cutting us to three FTLs and Anax. Commander Hammond will still have to fly every day even after the Deacon gets back. Boku Map, as Lieutenant Johnson is referred to by Mama-san, won't be much good for anything after coming back from Hawaii. Rookie Rich's talent for hiding should be of great value in Bintui. Lieutenant J.G. Check Carlos Steele has opened a chain of combination taco stand slash minigun exchange outlets with branches in Kuchi, Tan Tan An, and Ben Luck, with others soon to be opening in Long Bin, Ving Long, and Viet Tien. Lieutenant JG Weird Harold Black is still looking for his mysteriously vanishing M60 bolts. Latest debt for basketball casualty was Lieutenant JG Buckets Coffee named after his golden touch on the court, who got four stitches in his head after going for a rebound. Who will it be in April? Three additions arrived this past month. Lieutenant Tom Rabola and Lieutenant J.G. Denny Rowley, which is you, sir, are new in country, and Lieutenant J.G. Bill Belts was shafted, shifted from debt eight. 
Oh well, with TV booze and all the attractions of the big city, what more could you want? As one of our departed pilots used to say, going home is for sissies. <laughs> so, and you guys, these are all of mine. They're, they're fantastic to read. I, I read that to uh, my buddy Dave Burke, where I sent, I sent him a copy of it, and he said, that's the best sit rep I've ever read in my life. <laughs> so you guys had... Uh, you know, it's it, it's good because, you know, I, I always talk and, and, and every vet that comes on here, we kind of talk about how we have fun. And that shows that, and I guess getting mooned through your side window <laughs> also shows that you guys are having fun. I don't know if the hot brass is fun, but you guys were having a, a, a great time and you guys were making it fun. Um, and at the same time, man, it was very intense and very dangerous one of the things that you know you 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 kind of threw it out there you said hey we we put these debts all over the place so we could have a quick response time and what that meant was you guys were spread out in these debts so that you could get two guys on the ground within a matter of minutes tell me about that op tempo and what it was like when when they scrambled the seawolves well we had uh two full crews uh for each one of our two birds and what that meant was you were 12 hours on, 12 hours off, 365, 24, whatever. Uh, in order to support the, uh, the Brownwater Navy, uh, when they got in the shit, they, they needed us right away. And we could literally uh, get off the deck uh, in about three minutes. And uh, that put us out there uh, quickly enough that we could probably uh, get them out of trouble. The, the worst thing that could, could happen to them, in my estimation, other than uh, losing someone, is, uh, is losing their engine. Because then they were just uh, out there with, uh, uh, they were a grape. No, no place to go. So all they could do is just absorb the, uh, uh, the incoming and with that in mind, what we would do is go on out and uh, try and first get get their heads down, and then two start uh, uh, working the target. Uh, we had a very close relationship with the uh, the PBR sailors, very close. Those guys uh, were sticking their necks out every day, and uh, the, the times they got in trouble, we were happy to go and uh, and uh, try and extricate them, uh, no matter uh, no matter what. But uh, one of the great quotes that uh, I saw in the, uh, in the history that I was reviewing is uh, the first contact that HC1 made. The, the, the two boats had uh, gone out on patrol and had stumbled across a battalion-sized element with uh, about 80 sampans and uh, junks that were trying to cross a river. And the boats came under, obviously, intense fire. When the sea, sea wolves got there a couple of uh, uh, minutes <laughs> after this, uh, the, uh, the uh, incoming fire team lead uh, contacts the chief of the boat and says, uh, uh, where do you want us to put in our strike? And he said something like, hell, I want you boys to go in there and hold field day on those guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and that's sort of the attitude that, uh, you know, it, it is. It's, it, it's an overused term, but it's a brotherhood. It, it truly is. Uh, you did, we'd do anything for those guys. They were putting it all out. Did you guys, did you guys um, pre-brief with them f for missions or 
how did you figure that out on uh, how did you figure it out so did you know where they were going did you know yeah. what their target was did they pre-brief you unfortunately we we had uh, intelligence that uh, was to put it kindly generally a a piece of crap. It wasn't very good for a number of reasons, for a number of reasons. But uh, what we'd do is uh, we'd uh, talk to the guys on the boats. We'd know what the tactical situation was in the OA, and we would uh, uh, know where they were going and uh, what the, what they were doing. That is, are you going out for a bunker? Are you uh, doing an insert uh, with SEALs? Uh, we'd get that information from the, uh, from the team that was there. Actually, we didn't have a team. It was a, uh, just a, a squad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, we'd share the, share the information. So we'd know about where they were going. And what we'd do as soon as we got airborne is head for the, uh, the pre-brief spot and then get uh, uh, up, update the info uh, en route. So that by the time we got there, we knew that where the fire was coming from, uh, what the situation was with the boats, and where we were likely to put in our first strike. So the deconfliction, as far as where you were shooting and friendly fire and all that, was—I mean, as long as as long as they tell you, hey, north north side of the river or something like that—is that how you would deconflict? And did you, when you were supporting ground troops, how the hell did you know who was who down there? We'd pipe, uh, have them pop smoke, and that generally worked. But the the worst thing that could happen is uh, when you say pop red, and one shows up right where you uh, expect it and one shows up 100 meters on down <laughs> yeah. so uh, uh, the, the, the bad guys had our uh, had our freaks and uh, uh, well I don't know if they had our freaks or not but they could certainly see a smoke right. and uh, they'd pop it also right same one and that uh, uh, could create a little uh, confusion but it also gave us a, uh, a, a locus of points that we could uh, talk to the uh, guys on the boats and they could uh, direct our fire and one thing that's important about that, the 2.75 folding fin aerial rocket uh, was a, a great tool. I didn't like it much because uh, it wasn't all that uncommon to have one of the, the fins not open properly, and then it'd just go squirrely and uh, go anywhere. If you had the aircraft uh, trimmed up, uh, it, it could be an effective weapon. But I didn't like to use it too far out because that gave it <laughs> more of an opportunity to, uh, to develop a mind of its own. I used it more as a, as a close-in weapon. Mm. So these, the, you'd be sitting in your, in your hooch or whatever, and you'd be stand, you know, just standing by. It was your 12-hour shift, and then all of a sudden the radio call would come in. They'd, they'd tell you guys, go. What was the procedure like from there? Uh, assholes and elbows out to the aircraft. The uh, one of the other crews, first first guy there, would uh, be uh, setting the, uh, the 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 aircraft was precocked, but they'd go ahead and uh, set the uh, uh, the uh, rockets up for us and uh, jump in, uh, hit the button, and go. You uh, every. I think that it's safe to say that practically every operational mission that we flew, we took off over max gross weight. Uh, you'd uh, pull it up enough to get it out of the revetment and get it out there. And what we'd do when we were really seriously overweight is just sort of inch it ahead and get a little forward uh, momentum. 
uh, on the helicopter and then drop the collective, which puts all the weight down on the skids and spread the skids and then pop it up a little. And the aircraft would be uh, would slingshot up to, oh, about three feet. And then, you know, you, hopefully you'll get across the B-40 fence at the end of the, uh, end of the runway. It, 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 it was colorful. <laughs> yeah. But uh, had to do it in order to carry enough ordnance to, uh, to get guys out of trouble. And then, uh, I mean, um, when we were in Iraq, we always felt like the helicopters, which when Ramadi, the helicopters, they wouldn't really fly over the city of Ramadi because it was, it was too dangerous for yeah. them. Um, the couple times that they came in, it was like uh, it was like a just massive machine gun fire at them, and, and they didn't really in, enjoy that too much. But you guys were just. So, so my point is that helicopters and actually vehicles as well—they're they're like bullet magnets, right? Everyone, if you see a, a helicopter come in, the enemy just sees that and focuses on it. Yep. You guys must have been—you you had to be taking fire all the time. Yep, all the time. You get used to it. The uh, <laughs> one of my gunners <laughs> reminded me of a uh, the first time that uh, we saw a fifty-one cal uh. coming at us. It was uh, it was night, and these things, you know, they, it's as big as a basketball. It's as big as a freaking basketball coming up at you. <laughs> we started to see the tracers come up at it, and he says, "Damn, you did the right thing." I said, "Yeah," and he says, <laughs> "Lowered the collective immediately, uh, got down uh, on the deck, and then uh, came around, and we could could adjust." But those things are, are frightening. Oh yeah, that's but it's. It goes with the turf. Yeah. You're, you're, you're 20 years old. Uh, that was 23 at the time. And uh, it's, you think the mission, you think the, the, the pride that you take in, in the guys and the, uh, the uh, pride they take in you, and it, it, it's frightening. You know, there was, there, I was terrified at times. I think we all were. But uh, you, you get by that. You get by that. You think about the guys down there who are really in the shit. And it's easy to uh, apply what you know tactically and uh, get the job done. That's a, that's another thing that that's why I was kind of asking you about meeting with the guys on the ground because yeah. you guys are doing this, and and I'm sure in some situations you had never met the people that were down there, and you're still risking your lives to go in there and give them the support that they need. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's what we did. <laughs> there's a there's a counterintuitive thing too to helicopters that you just mentioned, which is, is when you're getting shot at from the ground. If you get lower, it takes away some of their field of fire, right? Right. So so you would think, oh, there's someone shooting at me. I'm going to get up and go away. When the reality is, if you get lower, you know that that person there's going to be trees or whatever yep. terrain features in between. <laughs> That's got to take a little bit of time to uh, to get your instincts going in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly does, but it's amazing how quick uh, those instincts are developed <laughs> when you got somebody shooting at you. Uh, and then the maintenance crews, the birds are, I saw pictures of birds, they were just like, it looked like they had been used for target practice yeah. coming back. You, you go watch that movie, uh, Scramble the Seawolves, it looks like target practice was used. That's what they were using the birds for target practice. That's what some of them look like. Yeah. And the maintenance crews would just, they, they said they were making uh, uh, patches from beer cans. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. And the the guys were proud of that. And the uh, the patch that uh, was a beer can would not be painted over generally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, and uh, there was one thing that I want to say, and this is going to sound uh, like a, I'm a one-trick pony in my love for the gunners, uh, but those guys uh, not only fired the weapons, they serviced the weapons, they serviced uh, the, uh, the helicopters, they performed all the dailies, they were all qualified plane captains. They kept that thing up and running for us so that we could walk out with our silk scarves and uh, strap the thing on and uh, take them out to where they needed to be in order to get the job done. No, we're not Air Force. We don't believe in silk scarves. <laughs> Sorry, Air Force brethren. <laughs> and then, uh, so you're, you're doing this, this is a crazy op tempo, operational tempo of 12 on, 12 off, 365 days. Yeah. That's insane. You get used to it, you know. It, it's it's funny. I mean, you got you got eight hours of sleep, okay, and then you got four hours to eat, and then the other twelve hours you're on standby to go fly into into gun battles. I got for ner- three hundred and sixty five days. Yeah, I got nervous though when I wasn't flying. You know, a decent aviator wants to fly, and uh, it was hard sometimes just sitting around waiting for your turn. We played, uh, lifted a lot of weight. Uh, played a lot of volleyball. Played volleyball uh, with and against the uh, the seals and sometimes the uh, the boat drivers. Uh, it just it was uh, fifty meters from the uh, from the aircraft, and that kept us uh, kept us right there so we could respond quickly. And then, um, how often were you guys doing casualty evacuation? Only when needed. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't a primary mission of ours. If somebody got shot up and uh, needed to lift out of town. Uh, we'd provide that and uh, occasionally we'd uh, get a call that uh, uh, someone uh, was uh, wounded and uh, uh, we'd go out and uh, pick them up but uh, generally that was a job that was done by some certifiable idiots that I love the uh, the dust off pilots you got uh, 20 19 20 year old kids that are out there given the keys to to uh, a, a Maserati of course this was only a Huey but still you get the idea they were crazy. They'd fly into, into anything. My hat really goes off to them because uh, uh, they'd fly into areas where they shouldn't. That's a, a, another thing I talked about um, with uh, Colonel Bill Reeder who was on this podcast. And same thing. I mean, he just said that the, the pilots back then, and maybe it's because the aircraft were uh, very inexpensive compared to, the, you know, to what they fly nowadays. <laughs> yeah. they, didn't, they don't want to risk the aircraft now. But he said these guys, they would just fly into, like, it was, it, hey, your, your, your aircraft is just going to get hit. That's the way it's going to be. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you ever get the, get the opportunity to read uh, the, uh, some of the uh, citations for the Congressional Medal for uh, the, these Hilo pilots, it's, it's incredible what they did. Now, w- I was... And always on this show, give the uh, same praise that you give to the machine gunners, because the machine gunners in in a ground combat, it's the machine gunners that are going to allow you to be able to maneuver and get away from a situation, um, or maneuver towards. You know, they're going to allow you to move. And same thing with with your gunners and what they were doing. So you had a gunner on each side. That's right. That would protect the flanks. That's right. One of them on either a, a 60 or a dual 60 and the other one on a 50 cal yeah, or generally or eventually a, a minigun. Oh, and then you guys got yes. the miniguns. Yes. I, in, I looked at there was a real, f- real fast flash on the screen 
in Scramble the Seawolves. There's a minigun, and it's actually, it's upside down. You can't, I had to pause it to read it. It said, um, the Lord giveth, and the minigun taketh away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It it, it was a formidable weapon for a... Close, closer support. Yeah, for people that don't know what a minigun is, it fires. It fires what five thousand rounds a minute? I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous yeah. what it shoots. Yeah. It's, I, it's, I don't know what the rate is, but it's it gets your attention. Yeah, and it just it it's powered. It's it's powered. It's electrically powered, yeah. so it, it actually feeds the ammunition faster than than a than a normal mechanical weapon yeah. could fire. But it just. It's crazy how much and how much how many rounds puts. I think it's five thousand something like that. It's, it's a ridiculous yeah. amount. And then you guys got those. So those were on your birds while you were on deployment. That's right. Yeah. As far as the uh, the minigun goes, you know, it doesn't go bang bang bang. It goes bzzz. Mm. Uh, the rate of fire is phenomenal, and the uh, the gunners loved it. But uh, you know, there's a little John Wayne in all of us, and I think uh, <laughs> every one of them would like to go back to the uh, to the free guns. One thing uh, that I, I, I do want to point out is that uh, we were not very well equipped. So when we were up and around, uh, you know, on patrol or, or actually out there engaged and uh, had to uh, fly into uh, to gas up and, uh, and uh, uh, rearm, we'd go into an army base because the army had all the fuel and they had nails. The uh, 2.75 makes a boom, but if you can load it with flechettes, you can really keep the enemy down. So we'd go on up there, uh, depending on the uh, tactical situation, uh, if if we had a cause uh, for uh, uh, anti-personnel, something developing on the ground, we'd, uh, we'd load up there. And that's where I saw my first Cobra. The snake was an impressive uh, aircraft. It was so much. It had so much more firepower than any one of our Hueys. But where do you put the gunners? You know, it's four and a half seating. They uh, don't have any suppression for uh, rolling off target, other than uh, your wingman. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, it was intriguing, but it just didn't make sense to me. Uh, did, I, did I remember this correctly? That at one point, uh, your whoever the commander was at the time got offered, "Hey, do you guys want some Cobras?" And the answer was, "Nope. We 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 need to stick with the Hueys." I'd heard that story. I don't don't know whether it's true it's or not. Verified. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We like that. But uh, you know, one of the guys you mentioned in the Wolfgram, and I will mention his name, uh, Chuck Steely. Uh, up Chuck was quite a guy, <laughs> and he would go out uh, on. Uh, to requisition parts for us. Uh, at the time, the Army had uh, a, a contractor, Dynelectron, that was doing the, uh, the work on their aircraft. And, you know, they're bored out of their skull when they don't have anything to work on. So they uh, got uh, a uh, loach and started rebuilding it from spare parts from here and there and got it to be fully functional. And, you know, to, to have an observation helicopter like that, uh, to go out and uh, snoop and poop with us, that would be incredible. Chuck engineered a deal where uh, for a refrigerator full of beer, they'd give us this aircraft. You know, it was written off the uh, rolls. They're, they're, they're closing it. But, uh, you know, they said, hey, if you have a problem, let us know. We'll come down and take care of it. <laughs> I, 
I like to think that Chuck was unplugging our refrigerator when the dead ONC came in. And not just no, but hell no. But, you know, that sort of thing was not unusual over there. Yeah, God bless Chuck. He did did everybody a lot of great service. The... Uh the, speaking of beer, apparently the the, the wolf on the Sea Wolf insignia is somehow based on the Lowenbrow beer can. That's what they say. Allegedly, that's what they say. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. You know, strangely enough, I I didn't drink much beer at all when I was over there because uh, uh, they they seemed to treat it with something that uh, just put the taste off. Mm-hmm. We we all thought it was formaldehyde. That was the uh, <laughs> the the going rumor, but. Uh, they told us that in Gu- when I was in Guam, my first deployment. They told us the same thing. Yeah, that there was formaldehyde. That rumor's been that rumor survived from 1969 to uh, 1992 when I was on my first deployment. There was but, formaldehyde in the beer. But how did the beer taste? <laughs> Awful. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept trying to see if I could make it taste better, yeah. but I didn't succeed. Yeah. There's so some of the stuff that you're talking about, um, you know, from a leadership perspective. You got you got guys that are risking their lives every time that call comes. How how did you did you see guys that that got to a point where they couldn't take it anymore? Did you did you have situations where you had to send guys back to the rear? Um, what did you do when you saw a guy kind of start to start to get too nervous to to go? Uh, this may sound self serving, but I don't care. I didn't see anyone in our debts, and I did not see directly anyone who behaved in a cowardly manner, an overcautious manner. Uh, we didn't have anyone that uh, was sent back to the to the rear. Uh, there was a camaraderie that you just can't explain to somebody who hasn't enjoyed it. It's uh, it's an honor to serve with people like that, and we all took pride in our reputations among our uh, our squadron mates. So it, it, it wasn't hard at all. And and that was so clear. When you watch Scramble the Seawolves, it's so clear. And there's this incredible, um, like you can see the camaraderie. And you can hear it when you read through the, the, the Wolfgrams. You can see that guys are having a good time. And there's this, I mean, what, what I would consider and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but like a peer pressure of, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do this. You know, I've I've often said that when you get to a good SEAL platoon, it's not a team, it's not a platoon, it's like a gang that you have. <laughs> it's a gang, and we just don't allow for that bad attitude to creep out. Yeah, yeah, I I feel the same way about the. Uh, the uh, Sea Wolves, and this might be a, ba- a good time to uh, share with you the fact that uh, I, at one time, after uh, returning from Vietnam, was so fed up with the mission that we were flying. It was an aging aircraft. It didn't have systems that were required to do the job. The, the uh, job itself uh, was not that important. And, you know, you come from living on adrenaline for a year and then come back and uh, you're expected to, I don't know, figuratively put your uh, boots up on the table. Uh, One day I got so pissed off 
in the middle of the morning, I uh, jumped in my Corvette. Remember that? Uh, <laughs> hey, I, I learn, I learn. Jumped in my Corvette and uh, uh, tore on up to uh, Coronado. And two of the SEALs that uh, we operated with friends uh, were there. And I walked into the office. They had their LSDs pulled up face to face. And I said, guys, I've had it. I want to join up. And they looked at each other, and they locked up their secret, and each of them grabbed me by an elbow and took me up to the little club in Coronado. And we started pounding beers that tasted great, no <laughs> formaldehyde there. And by the middle of the afternoon, they'd convinced me that uh, uh, being a, uh, a peacetime seal uh, wasn't uh, everything that, uh, that I would expect, and that the, uh, the Navy had put an awful lot of investment into making me what I was, and I could make them a far better contribution by uh, continuing to fly. And I, uh, I turned my back on my opportunity to find out whether I had what it takes to become a SEAL. I'm surprised that those guys... Um well, I'm surprised they didn't talk you into it. Those must have been. <laughs> they must have. I'm surprised once they got enough beer in them, they did. They didn't have you down at down at Buds with a log standing over your head. <laughs> yeah. Is there any particular missions in when you were in Vietnam that that stand out as you know one of the ones on Scramble the Sea Wolves that they talked about? This was absolutely ridiculous. They're talking about the 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 helicopter was the helicopters were there supporting a unit on the ground. There was no one to relieve them. Um, they needed more fuel. They were running out of fuel. The fuel lights on. There's still no one to no one to relieve the helicopters and provide support. They say, you know what? Screw it. We're just going to stay until we run out of gas. And that's and that's what they did. They stayed until they ran out of gas. The other group came in. They used ammo cans mm-hmm. to refuel. To, to, to carry once once the, the fire on the ground had subsided they used ammo cans to refuel the the helicopters that were out of fuel so they could get back to base that's freaking crazy <laughs> <laughs> well you know we never really took time to think about whether it was crazy or not you got a job to do and you know that that's probably a natural way to uh, to explain it that was the job you went out and did that because that's what was expected. That's what the guys on the in the boats expected of you. Mm-hmm. That's what the uh, the SEAL team that we had, uh, the, the SEALs that we had operated out of Benlock expected. And when they call you, you go. Yeah, that's another thing I think is really uh, um, impressive about the Sea Wolves is, well, first of all, they took volunteers to go mm-hmm. do the job. And, and like you said, uh, a bunch of people volunteered. But... The other thing is, and, and I heard some of the vets talking about this, some of the Seawolf vets talking about the fact that they'd say, oh, I was in the Navy and I was, you know, in the shit. In Vietnam, people say, oh, you were in the Navy, yeah. you weren't in the shit. But the reality is people, you wouldn't, I can't imagine that there was any of the gunners that when they joined the Navy, they thought to themselves, what I'm going to be is a door gunner in direct combat with the enemy. These are guys that were joined the Navy for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And they end up in that job where, you know, they're doing this day in, day out and risking their life day in, day out. Not not really what they signed up for. And yet they held the line over and over and over again. All of them volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it it humbles me to have uh, been able to uh, to operate with guys like that. 
And, you know, I, the pilots, yeah, the pilots, uh, brass balls. It, it was expected. It was the job. The gunners had those balls and then some because they kept us up, uh, kept the aircraft up, kept the systems up. I had a leadership lesson uh, when I first got there. Uh, growing up, my dad, uh, you know, he we hunt and fish and. I uh, had fired our, we had two uh, 14s for each bird. They hung on the back of the uh, pilot seat. And I'd taken one on out. We had a little makeshift range and uh, fired it and brought it back on in after I was done and took it in to the crew area to clean it. You would have thought that I had just stepped on a baby rabbit. I mean, it was more like, it was polite, it was respectful, but give me that thing. <laughs> and the guys had that feeling about uh, the, the armament, you know? It, this, this is my job, this, I do this. So, you know, it took a little getting used to. It was easier to let them clean my 45. <laughs> uh, then, uh, I just kind of want to, you know, when when you're when you're there, um, you you start to get to know these guys really well. And I, I don't, you didn't loot, you didn't have anyone killed from your debt while you were there. Is that correct? That's correct. But obviously, other guys in other debts were killed while you were there. Did you guys have any kind of? And this is something I've talked about before: is Americans, and I think it's just because um, we have so many different cultures here. We don't have a good protocol to deal with to deal with death and you know other other cultures around the world if someone dies you know you you do this for a day you do this for a day you say this prayer you you go through the ceremony and and then you move on and americans we have so many different cultures here that are all mixed together and death isn't something that happens all the time so we really don't know a lot of times hey what am i supposed to do and i think that's what that's what causes people problems is they don't know they don't know how to handle it they don't know how to put closure on it and so it just kind of sticks around when you guys would learn that that someone in your debt had been killed wh- was there any protocol that you guys set up was there anything that you guys did to to try and take that on board and then move past it i probably miss out on a leadership opportunity and when uh, guys got killed uh and other debts in combat or even just uh, ferrying an aircraft in for maintenance. Uh, I didn't sit down with the, the guys and talk about it. I internalized it and being Irish uh, would reflect on all the good times we had. Didn't think about uh, what, what went wrong. Didn't want to know initially, you know, eventually you do because it's important uh, for, uh, uh, for your trade. But uh, I just think about the good times that we, uh, we shared together. I lost a couple of academy classmates. I lost some great friends that I made while I was in country. Uh, one young fellow, and I, I don't want to mention any names, but he and I were uh, both uh, bicyclists. And the one thing that he wanted to do when he got back home was build himself the primo bike and uh, uh, start uh, start competing, and he never got that opportunity. And when you when you personalize something like that, when you think about the opportunities that are lost in a heartbeat, uh, 
it makes you very thankful to be alive. It makes you very thankful to have known that person. And it makes you feel like you should redouble your efforts to get the sons of bitches that, uh, that took that life away from him. It, uh, it can help focus your aggression, and that's a good thing. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And that was, um, I guess, my way. Again, I was uneducated. No one ever taught me. But what, one thing I did is, okay, we're going to go to work. Yeah. That's the thing that I knew how to do. That's what I still know how to do is, like, go to work. And, you know, there's, I guess you could say there's some, uh, you know, eventually you gotta you got to deal with it. you got to uh, feel it more in the future. But, man, when I was overseas, it's like, yeah, okay we're gonna work yeah. and and that's where the focus becomes because you know and also from my perspective it was like you know your guys that's what they would want you to do that's what they would want you to do so let me let me share something with you based upon what your guys would want you to do came home from a mission uh, uh, one night we were in contact and you know you're you're decompressing and I uh, walk up to my rack and there's this Manila envelope for Lieutenant J.G. Rowley's eyes only. And I feel, oh no, somebody back on the, back home has died. And I open this thing up with trembling hands and pull it out, and it's a standard Navy message. And I said, hi, honey, I'm going to be in uh, Tansanut uh, in three days' time. Come on up and, uh, and see me. Uh, Sean's mom, the, the love of my life, call sign Stinky, doesn't have anything to do with uh, personal problems. It's a, a matter of attitude. Yeah. But uh, she was a flight attendant for Braniff, and she was flying Freedom Birds in and out. And she had one coming in. Uh, ben Lux only about oh, 40 clicks south of uh, Saigon. And uh, okay. And, you know, word immediately spread like wildfire throughout the debt. And uh, my guys, God bless them, they slept in a sun, uh, sandbagged bunker, our, our enlisted uh, crew. And it was normally pretty ripe. <laughs> but it was also the only place that was really, uh, that had a little bit of privacy. Well, they had determined that I was going to bring Stinky on down uh, for lunch, <laughs> pick her up in Tonsonut and bring her on down. So they had that place spit shot. I don't know how they, how they did it, but it was all right. It uh, turned out to be a bit of a disappointment. Uh, we uh, <laughs> flew, a, flew a helicopter on up to Tonsonut. And, you know, we're going over... Uh, bad guy country so uh it, it was armed <laughs> and i land the thing in front of i no, i didn't land it i wasn't flying it uh but we we land in front of the uh the terminal there at uh Tonsanut, and uh, immediately this air force uh truck comes on out with its cherry top going and this uh this sergeant says you can't land here and i pointed out to him that we already had and that we we're just <laughs> waiting for uh, uh the arrival and uh <laughs> We solved the problem by saying, uh, listen, this aircraft is armed. Why don't you stay here and watch it for us, and uh, we'll just be a little while. So <laughs> we walked on over, and this big old green Braniff jet comes on in, and everybody gets off. And, you know, the incoming guys aren't nearly as gay and festive as the uh, outgoing guys. So uh, they get off, and uh, there's Gail standing up at the top of the ladder just waving at me. So... 
Turns out she can't get off the aircraft, but they didn't see anything about us getting on. So, uh, you know, my crew goes on up the, uh, the the ladder and we're in there and Gail's introducing them to uh, the other uh, stewardesses and they're loving it. <laughs> and uh, we go to the back of the aircraft and sat there for 45 minutes just talking with each other. Uh, but when we got back and Gail wasn't there, the, the guys were just crestfallen. They were so excited about having somebody there. And, you know, they, <laughs> I, I don't think the place was ever cleaned again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that was my experience of dating my hometown honey in the zone. Yeah. <laughs> then, uh, what was it like? Um, was it standard Vietnam where just replacements would come when it was time for a guy to rotate out, a new guy would show up? Uh, pretty much. Like I uh, uh, mentioned earlier, I was sort of cut adrift at the uh, Annapolis Hotel and happened to run into a, a guy, Weird Harold, who you referenced in that Wolfgram. Uh, he uh, came just walking through uh, with uh, the uh, Debt 4 ONC, uh, Colonel Hammond. We called him a colonel. He was a, a Navy commander. Uh, and uh, uh, Dave introduced us and said, hey, this is a great guy. We should have him. And as it turns out, they had an opening. And uh, within a matter of a few days, I was in debt four. So it, uh, it was sort of a roll-your-own environment. <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously, they uh, put guys into, into slots where they needed them. But uh, the, 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 it was fluid. <laughs> So then uh, your time's coming up to, to head home. Is it, was it a one-year, 365 days? Yeah. yeah, pretty much, yes. And then did you um, you just stayed right on doing your 12 on, 12 off until it was time to go? What they normally do is for the last uh, week or two that uh, you were in country, send you into Ben Tui for the, uh, for the uh, out-processing, and we'd fly with the Sea Lords. So, you know, you didn't stop flying. It was just a different mission. And then you get back, uh, th then, you, then you get, okay, your time's up and it's time to go home. Yeah, pretty much. Well, you know, there'd, there'd be a, a bit of a party, <laughs> a drunk ex, but, uh, but other than that, yeah, yeah, that's, that, was, that was it. Then, then uh, how was that transition going from Vietnam and then what, how many, how many hours later you're back in America or how many days? Uh, it was uh, a, a straight through shot. We stopped off uh, in... Honolulu. There was one other stop, maybe Guam, and then Honolulu, and then home. It uh, straight through, and and so wait. So you, you were you married? You weren't married yet. No, no. We got okay. engaged on R and R in uh, Hong Kong, and that's a two beer story. <laughs> <laughs> so you got R and R from Vietnam, met your your bride to be in yeah. Hong Kong. That's right, and proposed. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, we'd already talked about it. We knew it was coming. Uh, I got down on a knee in Jimmy's kitchen and all of a sudden it, but it was pretty interesting. Uh, when I arrived in, in, uh, Hong Kong, uh, we were, I, I'd booked a room at the, the Hilton. So I go on down there and, uh, you know, I'm checking in and I'm in my, uh, my uniform. So the manager happens to be walking behind the desk and says, ah, Mr. Lowley, Mrs. Lowley is waiting for you in your room. I figured, shit, Gail's getting here tomorrow. What's mom going to think? <laughs> well, of course, Gail had gotten in a day early. Uh, <laughs> she was in there. But, you know, times were different back then. <laughs> so your transition from, um, from Vietnam back to America, all of a sudden, and you were, you know, people... 
people use the term wild west sometimes to describe various military situations where it was oh it was like the wild west mm-hmm. i don't know if it gets much more wild west than, than being sea wolf of vietnam <laughs> i mean it just doesn't seem the way you guys were running things the way the support that you got or didn't get yeah. the I mean, just the fact like you guys didn't even have flight suits; they you, you they they wouldn't issue them or something like that, and you guys were just wearing kind of what you what what you could get a hold of. Everything it, was sort of wild west. It took longer to get into a flight suit than it did uh, to pull uh, on a uh, uh, Nomex shirt and certain pants, and frequently it wasn't Nomex. And uh, as they say, uh, you know, I've uh, flown missions in my tenny runners. Just uh, th- th- we'd leave our uh, our gear there in the seat. And if I was playing volleyball and uh, they, they uh, scrambled us, you, you don't think about anything but getting in that aircraft and getting it cranking. Hmm. So, yeah, it was, it was Wild West. Thank and, God. Uh, yeah, and then, and then you get back to America, and you're still in the <laughs> Navy, right? Yeah. How was that? Well, I uh, got through training. You know, f- first of all, you're just decompressing. I was uh, newly married. Uh, Gail and I are getting uh, used to uh, living together. Uh, she's uh, dealing with my unique personality. <laughs> and uh, it, it was sort of a scramble. We partied our tits off when we got back. A couple of uh, uh, SEALs, one of them had a, um, uh, was connected to a family that owned one of the mansions uh, there in Coronado on the uh, on the waterfront. I think that was First Street, Front Street, at any rate. Just a, a man. It was a beat-up old place, but it, it was truly a mansion. And they had a couple mattresses on the floor, and they had a, a table in the kitchen, but no uh, furniture, and they had a, a, a tapper. And we'd go over there and just party like crazy. And the, the where I'm going with this story is through all of that time and through all of the craziness and through all of the drinking, uh, there was only one person who got hurt as a result of overindulging. He uh, ran his car into a telephone pole, didn't, uh, didn't kill him, didn't even hurt him very much, but that was the only uh, instance that I know of. And uh, the only casualty we had to alcohol was that same guy who uh, turned himself in uh, to uh, for AA and uh, was uh, cashiered out of the Navy and then uh, for 10 years he was sober clean and sober and he applied to get back in and the Navy God love it let him back in but more remarkable than that this is one of our pilots now from uh, from the Sea Wolves uh, they gave him his wings back and he finished up his career flying. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, the, the point is, we, we had a really great time when we got back. And all that was sort of uh, a haze. But when I checked into the squadron after I completed the RAG, uh, learned to fly the, the Nor- Noble H3C slug, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, our, our commanding officer took me in <clears throat> and uh, in my checkerboard interview says, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. You aren't going to get away with any of that crap here. And that uh, there was a leadership lesson there. I knew that I never wanted to be like him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that had to be intimidating for a guy, though, that's taken on these these pilots that have been doing what you had been doing, and all of a sudden they got to try and rein these guys back into the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope I'm not going into too many sea stories, but uh, <clears throat> great friend about the only guy names I'm using are guys who are deceased. 
But uh, Chooch Canis was uh, a co-pilot, and uh, we were sent off to uh, uh, for uh, uh, to Guam for some uh, uh, specialized training. And he and I are there in our uh, in our uh, <laughs> poopy suits at, at the bar, the O Club Bar at the Air Force Base on Guam, and we're in, enjoying a couple of beers, which tasted good. And all of a sudden, this bell rings like crazy, and in come these guys in in pressed flight suits with ascots and everybody in the bar all the air force guys are standing at attention mm. this, this b-52 crew coming back from a mission and we're just sitting there with our elbows on the bar and the crowd didn't know what to make of us but uh they didn't get too close to us either <laughs> it's i mean come on guys we all have a mission to do and rolling thunder was uh, very important if uh, taken to its uh, conclusion uh we might not have lost that war and i i use the words loss and war carefully there mm. that that's not a not a slip of the tongue uh they've, they've got a mission to do but i mean yeah the war from 40,000 feet, <laughs> and they're they worried about Sam's because they turn in at this. Uh, I don't want to go there. I'm sorry. I'd like to apologize <laughs> to the United States Air Force and all the noble men and women who fly for the Air Force. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, actually, you know, those um, when, when we got back from Ramadi, we, we, um, we got after it in a very similar way um, for s- several months. And I don't know how long you did, but, yeah, there was a lot of uh, – um, beer and other things that were drank and and I don't know you know there's it was sort of uh it was sort of it seemed like the the normal thing to do mm-hmm. I don't know it seemed like we were going to kind of get it out of our systems for a little while and you know um get over it cuz yeah. it is it is you know it's not that big of a deal I don't want to make it sound like it's all crazy but you know you're over there and it's like okay it's a little bit of it's it's a different it's yeah. a different scenario and you got to kind of process through the fact that everything that you just were doing whatever a, a week ago two weeks ago three weeks ago is now completely different the way yeah. your life is completely different and there's no one shooting at you and there's no one not not you're not going to lose in your guys which was the 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 weight that i felt lifted off of me about a month after i got home i was i just you know, woke up one morning and i just kind of felt different and I kind of, I was like, why do I feel, I felt different in a good way. And what I felt was, oh, I, I was thinking about why do I feel different right now? And, yeah. and as I sat there and thought about it, I was like, I'm not worried about any of my guys getting killed right now, which yeah. was the first time in months that I hadn't been thinking about that all day, every day. And so, yeah, when you come home, um, there's there's definitely that. And I, I think you, it's... I think you got to pay attention as a leader to everyone in that group to make sure that guys are staying within the box and staying within mm-hmm. what's what's I guess possibly normal for those situations because you can definitely be you can there will definitely be individuals that they'll 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 go too far and that they're yeah. they're not making the transition and what they need is you know some help someone to come alongside pull alongside and say hey man let's let's take it back a little bit we're you know, let's let's readjust, and you know, life's going to be normal again, and all that. Yeah. Unfortunately, the the way we were rolled in and out of the squadron when we left and came back to the world, it was pretty much an individual yeah. effort. Yeah. So, 
That, and I also temper it with the fact that your war was entirely different than ours, I would imagine. Uh, yours was more uh, up close and uh, personal than, than ours. Uh, to tell you the truth, I don't recall ever reflecting on whether my guys were going to come back from this mission or not. You know, it's something that we just all did. We all did it together. And I don't mean that to sound callous. Mm-hmm. It just isn't, uh, wasn't part of my, uh, my thinking. And that goes back to uh, what Cousin Kim asked. Uh, you know, how did you do it? Yeah. Well, trying to bring everybody back whole. Yeah, I, don't, I definitely, without question, thought about that every, every day. Uh, that was the biggest thing that I thought about every day was because there was guys getting killed um, every day, mm-hmm. basically. Um, there was memorial services every day. There was, uh, you know, one of the one of the things. That, and I've talked about this a bunch, but there was a a vehicle graveyard outside. It wasn't. It was on the way to the gate to leave Camp Ramadi. There was a vehicle graveyard where all the vehicles that had been blown up and destroyed by IEDs. And there was, I would say, fifty or seventy five, maybe even a hundred, but a massive area. And so, in order to leave the gate, you drove by that. Yeah. It was a it was a pretty harsh reminder, and, and you know my guys would go out on missions. I wasn't always going on missions because I was overall in charge, and there was multiple units, and um, so a lot of times I'd be just saluting the guys as they'd be leaving, yeah. and and that's a worse feeling of like okay, you know, it, you just you just got your damn fingers crossed, and you hope you've done everything you can, and hope you've mitigated the risk. But that was the heaviest, the heaviest uh, weight for me w- was just that daily thought. Um, Every because then there was also there was the fact that there was always guys in the field almost yeah. always There was almost always one of my you know Little detachments of guys was out there with seven guys and 20 Iraqi soldiers and there was gunfights going on and and that's the way It was that was the that was the heaviest thing um, from a leadership perspective mm-hmm. for me and Yeah, so when I got home it took about a month, you know before I was like before and and the other thing is I didn't everything that I'm saying about that feeling I was barely conscious of it while I was there I was like it was there but I was yeah. more focused on doing the job yes. I was more focused on it kind of cooked me like you know when they say the frog they put the frog in the boiling water you you cook it slow whatever you there was like that it was more like that like over time it just built up and what I did was just focused on working working hard but then when I got home it was like I said it was like a month after I got home I woke up one day and just felt like. Uh, 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 a weight lifted and I was saying what do I what is that what is that and then as I thought about it I'm thinking what am I not why do I feel like this you know I just had a big smile on my face and was you know walking around my house and and thinking to myself ah, this this feels good what is this and then I realized oh you're 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 actually not worried that one of your friends is gonna die today which is a, a which was a, a totally so like I said, it was something that crept up on me and was just there. It yeah. was just part of being over there, and um, felt good to uh, to to have that weight come off. But um, you know, again, I think I dealt with it pretty decently. And you know, did I get drunk with my friends? Yeah. Well, there was uh, some some significant TU Bruiser activities that um, <laughs> were 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 fun, and we let off a lot of steam. Yeah. And. I think that's fine, but again, you know what worries me about saying that is that there's some people that take that as like, oh, okay, now I'm cleared hot just to go and 
and get drunk and get crazy and it's like no actually you're not um you got to keep that in check and especially from the guys that are in leadership positions hey man you got to keep a close eye and step back and detach and look at the guys and say okay I get it. We're gonna let off some steam. I get it. We're gonna adjust back to the real world But we need to make sure that everyone is staying inside the box and make sure that they're gonna come back out of this thing Okay, because I mean we all know it nowadays man the vets veterans come home and that's a hard transition to make from from combat to you know the civilian world and 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 even the world that you're talking about going from being a sea wolf in the wild west coming back to your commanding officer saying look you're not going to get away with that crap here <laughs> and you know we we definitely had our share of little stories like that from to you bruiser where you know guys guys would not quite be ready you know as a matter of fact jp Donnell, who who is with me at echelon front my brother when he came home when we came home he was in another platoon got hurt they sent him to our basic training school so buds he was gonna be a buds instructor and he didn't last very long over there because you can't take a guy that's 23 years old that just been through what JP had been through and say okay now you're gonna go go and be in charge of training these guys that are trying to make it through buds it, it wasn't a good fit yeah and so I just you know luckily had friends and was able to just pull him over and he worked directly for me again getting guys ready for the the more advanced training and combat training which he was perfect for but that was an example of where you know I is I had to look out and say okay this is not a good job for him right now you know JP's already an intense an intense guy and coming home from Ramadi you know it was it was a it was a tough deployment you know he lost friends and as a young kid he wasn't ready to be teaching these young you know he's looking at these kids like you know you're are you kidding me i'm gonna i'm gonna freaking decimate you guys and so i had to pull him over to a little bit more advanced training (laughs) my brother jp (laughs) um so you get oh so now so now you you're staying in the navy that's it never a doubt in my mind and you end up, I mean, you, you end up doing the anti-submarine warfare, which is the job that kind of, anno- is that the job that annoyed you? Uh, we called it also what? <laughs> we were uh, given a mission without the, uh, the means to prosecute the mission, and uh, that annoyed me. And then, and then you went on to become a test pilot. Is that right? Is that correct? Steely-eyed, granite-jawed test pilot. And look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so what is that job like? Ah, it's it's fascinating. You know, I'm I'm living proof that nothing harms a person more than too much formal education. But I get off on that, <laughs> and uh, it was brought home to me once when we were having a raging party at our home in Patuxent River, Maryland, when I was there at the test center, and most of the guys would have a copy of Playboy magazine on their night table. Well, a couple of guys had gone back to take a leak in our bedroom and found that I had some technical reports there, <laughs> and I. On mine, and I, I didn't hear the end of that for a, for a long time. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the uh, the technical aspects of it. I I've often said there are only two topics that are worthy of conversation between men, and that is flying and fornication. <laughs> and you know, I, I I lived to fly. Having said that, since I retired, I've flown very little. But at that point in my life, it was all about flying. 
and uh, it was a, a wonderful experience. The, the flying we did was not experimental flying. It was engineering flying. Mm-hmm. We test out weapons systems. We test out new aircraft. I was fortunate to, uh, uh, to uh, lead one of the three prongs of the, uh, the, the biggest helicopter acquisition that the Navy's made when they were looking for the new LAMPS helicopter. Uh, two of my great good friends were, uh, were flying the uh, Sikorsky and the, uh, and the uh, Boeing uh, products, and they were pretty well through their test uh, program, which took, I think, about a year, when uh, Bell Helicopter piped up and says, hey, we've got one too. Well, they didn't have a, a, a really logical contender, but they needed somebody to go on down and uh, lead the test of that aircraft, and that was me. And boy, that was fun. You know, you, you literally are flying a test card that takes you out to the edge of the envelope, and, and hey, are you good enough? Sure, I'm good enough. Yeah, just uh, uh, don't go too far and don't bust your ass. There's, there's a lot of uh, investment that you're sitting in right there that you want. They want you to keep in uh, in one piece. But no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, lifelong friends there, and just keep me to a story. The two guys that were flying uh, the uh, Boeing and Sikorsky, dear friends. One of them was a, a Naval Academy classmate, and he and I flew in Vietnam. And uh, the other guy, Greek, is just a wonderful guy and still a, a lifelong close friend well uh, duck uh was unfortunately he well, fortunately for uh hughes became their uh, chief test pilot uh he got out of the navy and was uh, flying for hughes and was killed in a in a in a horrible uh, accident and greek and uh, i uh, sort of sort of closed ranks and uh decided that uh, we were going to uh, try and send uh, duck off in good stead so <laughs> If you're familiar with San Diego now, you know uh, about the Point Loma Lighthouse and the area up there. That's where the family was waiting. Mm -hmm. Hughes had given us a uh, 500 to uh, scatter the remains in. Uh, Greek took it upon himself to do this. Now, at this time, he probably had uh, 2,500 flight hours. He knew his way around a helicopter. He's in his Navy blues. He gets in the aircraft. He's got the cremains in his lap, and they're flying out along, well below uh, the, uh, the point, on, uh, on out over the ocean. And he looks up and sees the family up there, and he's so emotionally wrought that he reaches down and takes the lid off of the cremains. <laughs> well, if you've ever been in a helicopter, you know that it's not a, uh, a, a very stable place to have cremains and immediately he said it was IFR inside that cockpit with duck everywhere (laughs) and fortunately the family didn't know what was going on and everything uh, came out fine but (laughs) Greek had called me up and said hey uh, I had to to make mustard today and I said yeah and he says yeah and when I got my blues out I'm still brushing duck off of them (laughs) so yeah there's ways you uh, you accommodate that Uh, uh, I always think of the great good times that uh, that Duck and uh, Greek and I had together, and I miss him. Sure, I miss him all the time. But you, life goes on. Sounds like he had the final say at that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were OIC during the Iranian hostage crisis. What was that like? <laughs> Uh, that, uh, was self-made, you know, yes, we were the only, uh, uh, helicopter out there 
that wasn't on the uh, large gray boats to actually fly the mission that uh, could could provide uh, combat search and rescue. Uh, so uh, we took full advantage of that, uh, got the uh, armament that we thought, we passing through Guam, uh, I didn't like the sidearm I had, so I went on down to buy one, I know it's going to take two weeks, and it took me about two hours to uh, get in touch with the uh, local authorities, and I had my, uh, my sidearm on, uh, just going over the horizon, which is sort of silly, you know, I mean, really. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're flying an overwater mission, and you need to say, well, you never can tell, it's always good to be prepared but uh, at any rate uh, we'd uh, go out there and uh, uh, and just train for that uh, when we weren't actually out there in in support of the uh, the, the boats uh, we'd go out and, and train for that you, you end up doing your 20 years um, and then you called it at, at 20 is that is that how long you did 20 21 21 years yep. and then you went off to the civilian sector yes I did started working a bunch of various jobs that's right. I started out in high tech. Uh, our company had uh, a professional staff of 200, uh, 60% of whom were PhDs. And I had enough technical background that uh, I'd go out to a customer with one or more of these PhDs, and they'd m- make their presentation, and I'd say, Let me say thank what you. He just what said. the doctor meant to say <laughs> was, yeah. I just had a, had a great time being surrounded by smart people. Yeah, it just is a lot of fun. It can be very frustrating at times, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And we, we have a, a curious insult in the teams, which is someone will ask you about a guy, and the guy's not a bad guy, but someone will say, oh, you know, he's, he's, a, really, he's a really smart guy. <laughs> Which is, you know, he might not be the yeah. best, most common sense. He might not be the best leader, but you know, he's a, you know, he's a smart guy. <laughs> so yes, it can't get frustrating yeah. hanging around with people that are super smart. And then five. And then when did you move to Hawaii? Uh, about fourteen years ago. I spent five years uh, in uh, range operations, and then they created a new position. And for my last five working years, I was the environmental manager for the Pacific Missile Range. My uh, daughter, when she learned of that, said, Dad, you hate those guys. And I said, yes, Heather, but now I'm in a position to say no. <laughs> and I just had a lot of fun. You know, the, the, uh, the local environment community, community great people but uh, they were not strong supporters of military training mm-hmm. and that that was uh, the, the my cause to help them explain why we needed to, to train out there and that we weren't out to kill the whales yeah well, yeah um, and then how long ago was it that you retired retired about four years ago yeah. that's <laughs> <Dang it>. <laughs> <laughs> Retirement has been very, very good to DJ. <laughs> yeah. Uh. And uh, I mean, I got I got one more quote that I that I that I wanted to read because um, I know we've been going at it for a bit here. But uh, this is this is another quote. This is a quote from um, from a Vietnam SEAL. Um, and here we go. Not only does many a SEAL owe his life to the Sea Wolves. But the units often operated together as a team very often located at the same base of operations We developed friendships that are still alive today Operating well outside standing opera standard operating procedures the sea wolves have lifted Seals out of enemy encirclements and I have known them to land in a hot LZ to lift out caches too large for the seals to pack out 
They also evacuated our wounded when medevac helicopters were not available. Most important, they were always there for us. When we were down in the mud and darkness, the night illuminated with red and green tracers, the VC behind every shadow. Many times after we were out of danger, they stayed with us until we were safely extracted in the middle of the river and out of the range of enemy fire. And that's Chief Barry Enoch, who's a, a legendary SEAL from SEAL Team 1, Navy Cross recipient. And I think that that quote just really exemplifies the, the bond between SEALs and Sea Wolves. And like I said, it was something that I heard about as a young SEAL. And it's a bond that still exists when, when I talk to the Vietnam seals and it's a bond that's uh that's always going to be there and um i'm into that uh do you have any uh you know i like i said we've been at it for a while and i like and like i told you before we started i could sit i'll sit here and i could sit here and listen to you all day (laughs) but uh do you have any other you know any other closing thoughts that you want to that you want to mention uh hand salute to the 44 that didn't make it back with us. Uh, anyone who hasn't been to the wall, anybody who's served who hasn't been to the wall, you ought to make that trip. Uh, a, uh, a shout out again, and I know it sounds like a broken record, but to the guys that are responsible for getting me back in one piece are gunners, great human beings. And uh, to the guys I flew with, Hey, next time we get together, the beer's on you. Yeah, I, I should share with you that uh, as a technical person, I have developed what I call Rowley's Theorem. And Rowley's Theorem says that all the truly great ladies hook up with all the truly big buffoons. <laughs> and Stinky, if you're out there listening, I sure am glad that you did that. Love you more than pork chops, baby. <laughs> and uh, well, also thanks to your son Sean for uh, for connecting us. And when he came up and asked me, he's like, "Oh, do you, do you, would you have a sea wolf on your yeah. podcast?" I'm like, "Uh, let me think about that for point two seconds. Absolutely." Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks to Sean for for connecting us, and and it's be, it's been an honor to sit here and listen to you. And thanks for what you and all the sea wolves did for our country for our navy and specifically thank you for the support that you and your brothers gave to my brothers and my forefathers on the ground in vietnam we'll never forget what you and your brothers did i will never forget the sacrifices of those those brave sea wolves that made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom amen and Dennis Rowley has has left the building, and obviously awesome to have him on, and incredible opportunity to talk about this the Sea Wolves, and go check out this website. It's seawolf.org. Really cool website to read through. One of the coolest things on it is I read that example of the Wolfgram. They got all the Wolfgrams, and they're all just funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're they're good. They're worth checking out. They've also got all the awards. That well, not they've got the list of the awards, but they got the Navy Cross Awards in there. Uh, just an awesome website, so go check it out, seawolf.org. And with that, 
if you want to support, you know, yourself, this podcast, etc. Echo, what do you got? Stay on the path. Okay, stay on the path. Talk about jujitsu. Yes, jujitsu. Get a gi. We know we're getting gis. Origin gis. Do we all know that yet? That's origin. Do we know that? Yes, you should okay. know that. So go to originmain.com. That's where you get your gi and rash guards for jujitsu. 100% bar none. I'm almost tempted to say don't even get any other kind of gi or rash guard. I would agree with that. Yep. Yeah. Boom. 100%. Also, if you're warming up or cooling down or just cruising, they have joggers. <laughs> and you got into the joggers. Yeah, no, so my son got some of the joggers, which he's totally stoked on. I tried them on yeah. just to see. see it was up. so horrible. <laughs> they are so not, not, not my you. situation. Well, here's the thing with joggers, depending on how you wear them, for sure. But they're more of a... Um, should I put this kind of acceptably? They're kind of form fitting from time to time, yeah. right? So they're you know they kind of uh, you know so they don't flap around. So they're yeah. form fitting. You in form fitting joggers, yeah, I could see how that could be a violation <laughs> for sure. But if you're not Jocko, joggers, most comfortable joggers in the world, probably in the history of joggers, maybe ever. Origin main origin joggers. Also, we got some supplements on there um, that you can take. You got Joint Warfare, which will keep your joints intact. Yeah. Yeah. Krill Oil, same thing. Kind of universal substance. Yeah. (laughs) That's to maintain the joint. I I went off the Joint Warfare for a little while. Why? Uh, Long story. Long story being, yeah, I you know lapse of discipline. You know how like you know how the kind where I'm like, oh, I don't feel the pain, you know, or nothing. So I just don't. I'm not like compelled as much. Oh, you know when you. I mean, you make it like a routine though, right? Like that's just the thing. I get up every day. Yeah, I take it before I get. I take curl oil and and joint warfare when I wake up in the morning and before I go to bed at night. Period. End of story. Every day. Yeah, like not you. You didn't even train that day. Still, one hundred percent joint warfare. I did train that day, but. Yeah, well, so discipline is not 100% because I don't take that every day. I take it when needed. Yeah, but, but I will say I've been using I feel like that's a little bit of a crutch right now because I've been using it a lot before. <laughs> yeah, well, still, you can take it every day. Yeah, yeah, you can. But no, the joint warfare, I like your mindset. I think I actually I think I should incorporate that where just it's just that's every just day. how that's just every how, day. Yeah. So with the joint warfare, I'll be like, well, you know, like it'll be in my mind. Not even necessarily heavily, but it'll be in my mind. Oh, did I train hard enough to warrant like joint warfare kind of kind of attitude? It's more or less like that. So I wasn't feeling any kind of inflammation <laughs> or pain or nothing. So I was like, uh, you know, I, so I so I skipped it one day, and then I sort of, you know, it just wasn't in my mind. Sure enough, and I'm still lifting, still doing it, still in the game freaking elbow comes back because <laughs> i'd get elbow from yeah, you know from yeah, pressing yeah. you know and i'd get little elbow things nothing terrible you just got to warm up more or whatever but man it came back and Son of did a, you go back just on like the, the, oh, on the joint warfare 100 this and was then, just this was just the other day so usually it takes a few days to like kind of get back how's it feel in. right now it's fine but when i start like, if i started to do a push-up like a close grip push-up right now mm-hmm. i'll feel it probably Maybe I don't. I don't know because it's been a few days. So that's joint warfare, krill oil, discipline, 
and then you got mulk, which is just the food that you need in your body. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it basically is. Yeah. And it tastes good. And also for your kids, you got warrior kid mulk, strawberry and chocolate. They're both really good, but let's face it, the strawberry is a whole nother deal. Brian is working on adult strawberry mulk. We'll be coming out with that. Can I ask shortly. you this yes. about the regular mulk? Dark chocolate is good, right? Yeah. Like after a certain percentage of what is it? What is it? What makes dark chocolate better, right? It's like a certain percentage of oh, you talking dark about in chocolate. general in life? Yeah, in life. Yeah, yeah. Because there's no sugar in it. If you just get straight dark chocolate, right? But then that's there's like eighty percent. Eighty percent. That's yeah. like the the threshold. Let me let me put you this way. Eighty percent is is good. When you get to seventy two percent, you're like you're like oh that's just a tasty. Yeah. You know you're just eating dessert. Yeah. Eighty percent's not quite. It still gives you a chocolate satisfaction, but it's not like the same. Yeah. Let me put it this way. If you eat two squares of 80% chocolate, you won't desire more. If you eat two, eat two squares of 72% chocolate, you're like, oh, I'm going to have a little bit more. Uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. it's just like that tasty. Okay, perfect. So so the uh, the mulk with adult mulk, my question to you, in your opinion, your Jocko disciplined opinion, if I put a chunk because last night I put this chunk. There was this chunk. I don't know why it was there. It was there. A chunk mm-hmm. of chocolate. It wasn't 80%. In the blender? I, I didn't put the whole thing. I broke off a little piece. Yeah. So it was maybe like a, the size of a, a two, you know those little baby Snickers bars? Mm-hmm. Two of those, I would say. That's how big the chunk, this block of mm-hmm. chocolate. Two chip. of the baby Snickers? Yeah, it was pretty big. Yeah, that's it was great. a big milkshake though. It's like three scoops. Okay, you know, like yeah. a, you know the, the thirty ounce, yeah. you know, the mugs that we have, full. Anyway, put it in with the peanut butter chocolate milk, mm. and it enhanced it. Oh yeah, well of course you put uh, so, some sugar in there. So the question is, is like how much of a violate? Like if it's eighty percent chocolate or dark, eighty percent dark chocolate. But you didn't put eighty percent dark. Chocolate I know, in there. but the, straight, <laughs> sugar chocolate doesn't matter what I did or didn't do. I'm saying theoretically. If I did eighty percent or more chocolate, that's good. That's still within the confines of I'd say you're being the on game. the path in yeah, the I'd game, say, right? I'd say you're in the game and on the path okay. at eighty percent. So if <laughs> when we come across eighty percent chocolate, let's add that just collectively. Let's add that and see how we all feel about that. That's uh, what I think. Check. You get the little chips at the bottom of the cup too. It's pretty cool. Check. Uh, also, I just talked to a guy. Strawberry or for the warrior kid, mm-hmm. Mulk. If your kid is lactose intolerant. Yeah. You put them on the uh, almond milk. Right. So get some of that. Too good. Also, if you want to represent on the path, Jocko is a store. It's called Jocko Store. It's where you can get shirts, hats, hoodies, tank tops, more rash guards recommended still within within the confines of being in the game. Our rash guards as well. Uh, if Yeah, if you want to represent in the wild, on the path and in the wild at the same time. JockoStore.com. That's where you can get some cool stuff. All Jocko approved. All of it. Women's stuff on there. There is, too. by the way, there is counterfeit Jocko stuff. Yeah, but here's the thing about A the counterfeit. Here's the thing about the counterfeit ones. They're like obvious. Like if you, all you have to do here, I dig it. Like you, you'll see a, a cool design that seems new because that's really the, the the what do you call it? The visceral, not visceral. That's negative, right? The, like the. Your immediate response is like, oh, new design on Amazon or wherever mm-hmm. these counterfeits exist. You see the new design, so you kind of, oh, cool, and you, in, your, your, in your haste, you click on it. 
Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. If you just stop for one second, you can be aggressive but not foolhardy, right? Mm, that's, that's the deal. Yeah. So you take this one moment to recognize the design, you'll know there's violations all through every single design <laughs> on there. First off, the font is like the, the completely wrong font. It's completely wrong. Then I saw one, like the good one, right? Mm-hmm. That's on like, you know, one of these one of these uh, websites that you can go to and you submit your PDF or JPEG mm-hmm. and it generates a shirt for you. Uh-huh. It's like, it's a super cheap thing. Yeah. So there's one of those, I forget what it's called, but it's one of those where it's like obviously cheap and the design's wrong. It's backwards. Ours is backwards. The good says is backwards. It's how it's supposed to be. Oh. There's ones all frontwards, like just some person who didn't pay attention yeah. is trying to do it. It's real obvious if you take that second to notice it, though. Yeah. So the counterfeit ones, hmm, you know. There you I go. So just look out for the counterfeit ones. Yeah, yeah. They're out there. Also. Just, you, you won't get counterfeit ones at jockostar.com. Correct. Yeah. Factually. Factually. Um, also. Jocko White Tea. Is mm. there a counterfeit Jocko White Tea? There is not. Yeah, so that's <laughs> that one's going to be a lot harder to con- uh, yeah, counterfeit. Yeah, you you'd have to put some effort into that one. Yeah, you'd have to get labels done. I would actually that. be kind of impressed if you counterfeited <laughs> like, like slightly, just in your mode of getting after it would yeah. be high level. Yeah. Because it's not easy to make tea. No. It's not easy to make cans of tea. No. And it's not easy to deadlift tea. 8,000 pounds unless you've been drinking your tea so yeah. get some of that organic too by the way certified just saying also subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and wherever you listen to po- uh, podcasts because there's a lot of podcast apps there's a lot of podcasts too yeah yeah and if you're listening to this one dang in, in a way it's kind of like man thanks well definitely thanks there's also the Warrior Kid podcast, yeah. which uh, is getting a lot of hype right now. Yeah, Why? Because we talked about it on the last two podcasts. Go here. People kind of recognized, and they didn't. Uh, I, this is the thing. I'm not real good at the whole, like, uh, like hey, everyone, look at what I'm doing. <laughs> That's not really, sure. you know, I'm like, hey, here's a podcast. If you want to check it out, check it mm. out. So with the, I posted it and talked about it, and so a bunch of people went, and check out the Warrior Kid podcast. The feedback is awesome, and I appreciate it. And also, if you want to check out some Warrior Kids stuff, you can check out irishoaksranch.com, where Aiden, who's a Warrior Kid, is making soap on his farm just for real. And if you want to get some of that soap, irishoaksranch.com. That way you can follow the motto of Aiden's soap, and that motto is stay clean. So check that one out. Also, we got a YouTube channel, which is called Jocko Podcast, and that's where these videos are of this podcast. If you want to see what Dennis Rowley looks like, how tall he is, how tall he is, can you tell that from a video where he's sitting down? He was kind of going out of frame, like yeah. when he like sit up. Yeah. yeah. So yes, he's you a can big tell. Dude. Yeah. He's a big dude. Full of aloha, by the way. Yeah, way full of aloha. Uh, but yeah, if you want to see what what Dennis Rowley looks like and you can come on there. You can also see Echo's enhanced videos, as he likes to call them. Sure. He thinks it's an enhancement when he adds stuff to them. <laughs> Dang, bro. You think it takes it away? I think well, It takes away the, from the message. The raw message actually, is Actually, I've there. heard that, yeah. I've oh, heard really? that. People have actually told you that? Well, I no, don't agree with it. Not too much. I'll tell you what but... totally changed my attitude is the is the Mikey and the Dragons video. Oh, okay. That video is sick. Okay. The video that you made is All sick. Right. Cool. And 
that video, I said to myself, even this is more powerful. Even like, you know, you never really think about, well, you think about it, but like the background music. Right. Like when when it says the king dies and it's like cello kicks it in the background, I'm like, dang. <laughs> Somber. Yeah. Uh, well, that that is a good point and you are kind of advanced in your thinking because real to put kind of to put it kind of precisely the goal is it's not necessarily to be like hey what's the background music supposed to be it's like what's the feeling supposed to be then you know certain instruments or music or whatever will provide certain feelings and you know that's kind of the goal to line them up that's it so man you recognize that so that video has definitely impressed upon me that videos can have a positive impact and positively enhanced to use your term what's going on with the words that are in the video yeah but what about if i put like the walls crumbling and crashing down see and then you just do that over and every single thing that happens explodes (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. does that take away from (laughs) you were like one of those people that got carried away with cgi on that video yeah which i you know you got to explore the boundaries yes and sometimes so. you go outside. I see on a recent video that I did. I'm not gonna say which one, but I did the same thing. But now with crumbling and crashing noises and effects, I did it with lens flares. You know, what lens flare is right. Oh yeah, somebody optical like, lens flare. Somebody puts a light in front of the camera. Yeah, well, it's the the aberrations or I don't know whatever the word you want to use that that a light going directly at the camera will create these like yeah, yeah. you know little. And you can do it on purpose, right? right? It's like a look. It's like an epic mm-hmm. look when you get what's called an anamorphic lens. It kind of does this thing. It compresses it to the side kind of thing. And then when you, when you, to put in layman's terms, basically when you put what the- What video f- did you do this on? I can't tell you. Now I'm going to uh, go watch all my damn you, videos. Yeah, go watch all the videos. You tell me. But here's why I don't want to say it because now people will be paying attention to it. You know? uh, and they'll be like, oh yeah, you're right. Because, okay, not to go into a whole long thing, but- Okay, so there's a guy named J.J. Abrams. He's a director and I think a writer too. But anyway, he does, he did like the new Star Trek movies. He Mm. did the new Star Wars. You know, he's like kind of a sci-fi guy. Um, And he got a lot of, he got a lot, people had an issue with the amount of lens flares he allowed in Star Trek, the Mm. newer Star. So they're everywhere. I thought (laughs) thought it looked dope, man. I, I really liked that look. But he got a lot of, you know, a lot of shit for it. Nonetheless... I don't want to be in that same boat with these videos, with that particular video that I'm talking about. So if they don't notice, then good. If so, then bad. See what I'm saying? Mm, I'm going to go post about it. <laughs> Nonetheless. Psychological Warfare 2, which is an album with tracks where I tell you what you should do to push through the moment of weakness. And that's all we're going to say about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it works with 100% certainty. I'll add that. Are you still batting a hundred percent right now? I am, right now. Well, here's I, I'm gonna call I'm gonna call oh, yeah. you on that. Oh, hundred percent. Really? Every single time I've ever used it here's the thing. I haven't used it recently because it's like Are you scared of it? <laughs> I didn't I didn't need it. I don't have many moments of weakness nowadays. Oh. See, I'm like forged in the fire of discipline. No <sighs> transgressions. Are you trying to set yourself up to make a video with flair for yourself? <laughs> That's extensive. No, 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 no. I'm reporting back to you my current status on my discipline. Nonetheless, I haven't had to use it recently. So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. If every single time that I've used it, it, yeah, it helps. Like, what am I going to do? Listen to you telling me and then, like, oh, yeah, I'm still good. You know, to me, just making the effort to open my ears to you is already, you're already like, 
on the, know on the way to like power through. Yeah, Check. exactly. Right. Check. So, you know, 100% on that one in my experience. Also, you want to vary up your workout. Onnit Fitness Gear is at onnit.com. They got a lot of cool stuff on there. A lot of good stuff. So, if you want to improve, enhance, vary, v- increase variables, increase stuff in your workout. If it's getting boring or something like this, go to onnit.com. Get some get something from there. Like kettlebells or rings or battle ropes. I think if you add one or more of those things into your workout, it'll be enhanced greatly results-wise. That's my opinion. Check. My prediction. Also, books. What do we got? Well, first of all, we got Mike and the Dragons. Told you about the video. Go watch the video, and then you'll want to get the book. Why? Because Echo did a really good job. And because the book is legit. Am I allowed to say that about my own book, or does that make me arrogant? <sighs> yeah, okay. no. From you're what not I've been told. It's legit. Everyone appreciates the book. And uh, a bunch of people have now started posting reviews on Amazon, which is very cool. I appreciate it. I've read them, and I'll read some next time live. But, uh, yeah, so so Mikey and the Dragons. Here's the deal. Is it sold out at this moment in time? Yes. Will it be sold out when you hear this? <laughs> probably not. Actually, it's probably we got more books coming in. Mm-hmm. I'm getting them printed um, as quickly as they can possibly print them. And I apologize for not correctly estimating how many books everyone would buy that is my fault and I apologize for it but if you do want Mikey and the dragons order it as soon as you can so that you can get it as quickly as possible also the way the warrior kid books way the warrior kid and Mark's mission those books are good for kids and adults and really anyone and you know just got done talking to talking to Dennis rally downstairs and he's like oh I, yeah I read those books they're awesome <laughs> so he's a he's a what I don't know how old he is but he's a Vietnam veteran pilot and he read warrior kids and was was down for the cause that's weird you said down for the cause because I was thinking in my head down for the cause yeah well he is clearly yeah you know down for the cause yep discipline equals freedom field manual good one outstanding one actually really I think so Again, and I said this before, I'm going to say it again because this is a constant thing. It's like one of those things, like a manual, like an actual manual Mm -hmm. for life. Mm -hmm. Right. But so, okay, you said that. I get it. But yeah, you refer to it. That's what you do. It's like a reminder. And we do this all the time, by the way. But this is a good one to just remember because that's part of the, 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 actually, it's the majority of the challenge right there is to remember this stuff. Like say, hey, you shouldn't freaking drink a soda right now with your sushi. Don't do that. You know that already, but if it's just part of the habit, it's like, boom, you might forget because you were thinking about some other stuff, you know, some edits or whatever that you had to do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so you got that manual there this time, and you just refer to it kind of maybe even daily, semi-daily. I recommend daily. Daily, yeah, and you just remember all this stuff. It just keeps you on the path, man. That one is in print, by the way. There's plenty of them, so you can order that one. And that's a good Christmas gift yeah. for people that you know who needs it in your world. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't think it's insulting. And well, by the way, if someone is offended by it, just get them to crack it open. Yeah. Because they'll realize, like, hey, this isn't meant to offend. This is meant to build. Yeah. And actually, you know what? Now that you think of it, that book isn't like 
extreme ownership might be that kind of book that if you get it with some, for someone they'll be like like what are you saying you know <laughs> like will elicit uh what do you call defensiveness yeah but the field manual won't because like first when you first see it you're like oh this is awesome gift <laughs> item you see what i'm saying like looking at it but it's like yeah it's like a cool like field manual it doesn't scream like you need to take responsibility for stuff mm -hmm. that's why i'm it just you don't get that feel but even even if that person might feel that maybe you got to do it with like a certain type of card or something see what i'm saying yeah thank you for everything you've ever taught me and then like give it to them you see what i'm saying <laughs> so it's like yeah Check. Well, speaking of extreme ownership, there's extreme ownership and there's the dichotomy of leadership, both books. They're about leadership and they are available, of course. And those are those are books that will pragmatically teach you how to lead. That's all there is to it. Uh, Echelon Front, speaking of leadership, that's our leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. It's me, Leif Babin, J.P. Donnell, Dave Burke, Flynn Cochran, Mike Sorelli, and Mike Bima. Go to echelonfront.com. If you want us to come to your business and align your leadership or you want us to come and do a keynote speech, go to echelonfront.com and get the details there. The muster is coming up. 2019 video soon to be released. It's going to be in Chicago, Denver, and Sydney. Yes. Three musters. Sydney, Australia. Are you familiar with that area? Yes. Yeah. So Chicago, Sydney, and Denver. Check out ExtremeOwnership.com. That's where we'll post the details. All of them have sold out, and all of them will sell out. You might not think that in Australia we're going to sell out, but we will. So you're saying all of them have sold out in the past? In the past. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, they haven't. These ones haven't sold out yet, but mm -hmm. they will. So register early. Everyone down under. Mm -hmm. We know when I was in Brizzy. Sure, Brizzy. I was in Brizzy, and we did a little book signing. I did a little book signing, mm -hmm. and there was people from all over Australia there. Did they you came notice, to Brizzy did you to hang out. When you were in Brizzy. Mm-hmm that the Australians tend to do that very thing with words. They'll shorten them and then put an E or an O at yeah, the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know? Yeah. Yes. The, uh, the Aussies do that with their See, names. right there, Aussies. Boom. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. I kind of incorporated that when I, I've been there twice. Right? And yeah, I noticed that and I liked it. The first uh, SAS guy I worked with, you know what his name was? What? Well, there was two. The first one's name was Dutchy. Dutchy, what was his whole name? I, it was a long Dutch name. <laughs> and the other one's name was Tomo. And then Nikki. Right. Sure. So, yeah, it's 100%. We're batting 100. Yeah. Batting 1,000. I was doing, a, well, I guess, what would be called a mini documentary one of the times I went there. And um, one of the guys' name is Jason Robig. He's a black belt mm -hmm. under Hicks and Gracie. So it's with him. And... He, you, he, the way he'd explain when people were like, hey, what are you guys doing? He'd be like, oh, we're making a little doco for, you know, mm. for this thing or whatever. And, um, and people understood. Oh, they knew exactly. And I was like, doco, I like that. It's good. But yeah, man. So yeah, incorporate that into your thing. <laughs> so cool. yeah, Australia will be down there, Chicago, Denver. Uh, also, we have EF Overwatch now. If you're looking to bring experienced, and tested leaders into your organization on the civilian side. We've got military spec ops and combat aviators 
that are leaders that have been trained and have been tested and they're moving into the civilian sector to come and help your company go to efoverwatch.com and if you want to keep you know sort of kicking it with us we're available on the interwebs on twitter on instagram and on facebook e boha Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks to all our military personnel out there that are out there protecting our freedom, and to all the vets that have served and have protected our great nation, and a special thanks to HAL 3, the Seawolves, for doing what you did 24 hours a day to support and save troops on the ground thanks to all of you and of course to Dennis Rowley thanks for coming on it's amazing to meet you and thanks for sharing your history and the history of the sea wolves with us can't say that enough thank you thanks to police law enforcement firefighters paramedics EMTs correctional officers border patrol first responders of all kinds thanks for holding the line for us 24 hours a day here at the home front and to everyone else out there if you're feeling a little outgunned by the world think about think about those words scramble the sea wolves and then go out on the attack no matter the weather or the environment or the enemy fire you got problems going hot and get after it And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko, out.